Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? You think that there's a good chance, I suspect, that Antonio Conte is the man. Pop my finish second. Ooh. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Johnny Ward, like to say, is alongside me this morning. How are you getting on, John? Good morning, Will. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I mean, it's a bit weird coming off a, a long weekend and into a Tuesday, so I was very tempted to say Monday at least twice in the intro there. But here we are, and you're putting your performance rankings together for the weekend after what was kind of like a slightly unusual weekend, but it meant that perhaps there was a bit of spotlight on sports that don't normally get it. Totally, yeah. I suppose uh, the women's game in general getting the uh, getting the hogging the headlines really, and uh, it's great to see that. And this has continued into uh, today. Lo- loads of back pages um, about Mead footballers and even uh, some uh, int- articles in the paper about what uh, the England players were listening to in the dressing room after the game, and uh, they seem to have a better capacity to kind of hold on to leads and close-out games and uh, the men's team in England over there but um, I guess the Shane Wallace story uh, I was getting texts about this from people in football over the weekend um, Kilcarran Clubburn is a club that would be uh, very close to where I'm from Will and uh, yeah this is mad stuff and I think it's it's very very divisive as well so there's lots to talk about Yeah no definitely um, When it comes to England was it more acceptable to you, John, the fact that the women's team won than the men's team last year? Because Sue Ronan was saying to us that she was actually actively going to support England at Wembley at the weekend. She quite likes this team. And she said she probably wouldn't have felt the same about the men's team last year when they played Italy. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I mean, I'm not... Um, I know, there's a kind of a post-colonial age-old thing of um, Irish people generally kind of um, supporting whoever England are playing against. I, I've kind of changed a bit over time. I'm not, I'm not as kind of... Uh, pushed about it as I used to be but uh, you, you do kind of see their fans sometimes and it's kind of just hard to warm them I don't think that's just the case with the women's team I think they're part of a revolution in terms of women's football and women's sport and I think there's a lot more envy from the Irish perspective that we weren't there to uh, take them on and probably a long way off England at the moment but I think uh, you'd, you'd more so admire them and I imagine a lot of an awful lot of Irish people watch them are simply up for England and um, they're quite a likeable team and uh, long way they celebrate as well and it's been an incredible credible tournament for uh, women's football and uh, I think a lot, a lot of people in the men's game in, in terms of men's Gaelic football and uh, men's soccer are looking on and thinking what can we learn from this because there's an awful lot of enjoyment out there there's not as much cynicism in the respective games I think and uh, it's an amazing transformation I think from where women's sport has been um, in the last 10 years or so Where and to me you know, I always thought it was going to explode didn't expect it to explode quite as quickly as this. Yeah, it's a huge change as well. If you look back, 2009, England played Germany in the Euros final that year and it was in Finland. So it is a little bit different to a home tournament where England were likely to get behind it anyway because it was a home tournament. But less than 2 million people watched the final that time around. Uh, They had a total audience in excess of 30 million across England on Sunday afternoon and into the evening. And over 20 million people were watching in Germany. I think 12 million people watched the semi-final that Germany played against France. You look at, you know, and I appreciate that people will make the point that um, the tickets were papered in many ways for the Classico earlier this year. But Barcelona had nearly 90,000 people in for their game against Real Madrid in the Champions League. They had roughly that for their Wolfsburg game in the quarterfinals of the Champions League as well. We're talking about a genuinely huge evolution here. 
they're phenomenal phenomenal figures um, and you know it's it's uh, it's one thing saying you know you should go on and support this and back them um, but then you actually you know watch how, how good these games have become and amazingly good standard of football because like I mean professional football um, has been around for so long football started in the mid 19th century or whatever the women's game has had it's, it's had to kind of adapt much quicker and um, it has had to put, put up with a lot of obstacles along the way. Um, these are phenomenal figures, though, and I think that's reflected in Ireland as well, where the figures, I don't know what the figures were for the mead Curry game, but, you know, these games tend to attract really, really good audiences, and it's reflected across um, the genders as well. People just want to watch these, these matches, and um, I think it's profoundly beneficial as well for young kids coming forward We'll talk about uh, Shane Walsh's role in, in inspiring young kids in Kilcarran, Clumburn and so on and so forth. But what, these, what this is doing for young girls to say, like, you could be the absolute hero of the world tomorrow and everyone will be watching it. Just, just because you're playing in a woman's yours final, it doesn't matter. I think it's just totally, totally inspirational. And there will be um, a lot of soul searching in Ireland as well as to what we can do to improve the game here. Because I think in men's and women's, we've so much to do in terms of getting to where we should be. Mm, yeah, it's often the fear of missing out as well. You look at at least Northern Ireland, they didn't have the best of tournaments, mm. but at least they got to be there. And it was a remarkable achievement for them with a primarily amateur team qualifying for the finals. And unfortunately for us, that uh, game against the Ukraine didn't work out for us. Now, OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up on the show. We're going to be getting Johnny's performance rankings in a few moments' time. Shane Hannan is with the send to look back at the Hungarian Grand Prix and also all the news from Formula One heading into the midpoint break in the season. Uh, we're then going to be having a look after that with the sports news we'll be talking to Mark Lawrenson as well who's going to be talking about the Community Shield and also Preston who've got a huge Irish representation at the moment it's swelled by one more with Troy Paris joining on loan they were held to a goalless draw at the weekend on the first weekend of the championship away to their near neighbours Wigan but we'll take a look at whether Alan Brown captain for this year at Preston as well where the Irish players can have a big impact this season in the championship and we'll uh, talk about Liverpool's 3-1 win against Man City and then a little bit later on the programme Johnny mentioned Meath going back to back with the Brendan Martin Cup. It's pretty much across the back pages on the newspapers here today. But many of their players now breaking away. Potentially the backroom team could be broken up as well. Anthony Moyles is going to be live in studio with us. And after nine o'clock then, Alana Canan is going to be talking about the European Championship final. She was at the Euro 2022 decider where England beat Germany after extra time thanks to Chloe Kelly's uh, very late goal where they won 2-1. All right, John, let's have a look at the performance rankings then. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. All right, let's start with the red, Johnny. Where are we going? Yes, this is going to be controversial. I genuinely don't know what my view is on this, Will on the Shane Walsh situation. Yet you've put him in the red from the top. Yeah, he's in the red because I think Shane Walsh is... I don't know Shane Walsh, but in general, the feeling around Galway will be that Shane is definitely... He's an individual thinker. He he's, um, doesn't exactly do things like everyone else. That's certainly the case in the football pitch. I think he'll 
possibly never see as good a performance in a Galway jersey and it, in, in terms of a losing team as his in the All-Ireland final still think he should have gotten man of the match I think he thinks that as well do you see a statement <laughs> yesterday where I think line three of the statement was arguably a man of the match performance in the final <laughs> now I'm not sure whether that was the PR company that he was sending the statement out from um, decided to uh, add the little editorial line in there or whether that was Shane Walsh himself saying you know what I probably should have got man of the match ahead of David Clifford yeah we should we'll have to try Colm has a great capacity to get people on the show we'll have to try and get Shane Walsh on at some stage but um, you know he, he he's probably right on that in fairness but I don't know how this sits with me he's he's getting to that stage for his career obviously where he, he wants to play as much top level football he's 29 um, and he does uh, you know have that commute to uh, Karen Clumburn for training which would be give or take sort of an hour 45 two oh, hours probably two hours really over and back yeah um, so there is that and I'm not sure I'm not sure I really uh, like the way the club have re- has reacted to this because I think, in fairness, I mean, they're trying to stop it. But at the same time, if Shane wants to do this, I mean, the club shouldn't really be stopping him. He's given service to Karen Clumburn. Lord knows what how good they are because of him. And um, obviously, they're they're not a senior team. So he's, 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 he's uh, an incredibly good footballer at that level. And he's decided at this stage of his life that he's in Dublin. At the same time, it doesn't rest that easy with me just to be joining a club that big. And I don't. I think the vast majority of players just wouldn't do it. I don't know what you think. Yeah, look, I think the super club side is where most people have taken issue with this. So, look, I don't think the chairperson of Kilcarran Clumburn held himself... I, I think he was counterproductive in his comments at the weekend. To come out as strongly as he did in that piece with Sean McGoldrick to say, you know, we're going to fight this all the way and this is the wrong decision and we want him to stay and we're incredibly disappointed and heartbroken about the fact that he's going to leave. Of course you don't want to lose your star player, but... It happens all the time. The players travel to other ends of the country and they join a club. Now, the problem with joining the Super Club is that he's gone to the current Dublin champions in Chemical Croaks, who were the Leinster champions of last year and who were a whisker away from winning an All-Ireland final against Kilku. Now, this is a huge boost to them to bring in an inter-county star, one of legitimately the best players in the country, who's going to come in to bolster their attack. Like, good luck to anyone in the coming weeks if this transfer is rubber-stamped as we expect it to be, trying to stop both Paul Mannion and Shane Walsh in the same attack. Like, how killer are Chemical Croaks going to be, uh, particularly on the counter-attack this season with those two players? Yeah. But this is an internal problem to an extent with Dublin. It's not a uniquely Dublin problem. Like, you look at Tomás O'Shea going to Nemo Rangers. You know, there's a list of players who've gone across the country and have joined, you know, big teams when they go into a different city or into a different county. But because in Dublin, you're not bound by the same parish rules that you are elsewhere in the country, it means that when you come into the county of Dublin, you can effectively play for any club within it once you're living within the county. Yeah. So therefore, you're naturally going to make the decision to go and play for Kilmico Crokes. And Shane Wall said in a statement, Johnny, that he wants to play for them for the foreseeable future. Now, look, I've no doubt he's studying in Hibernia College at the moment, and he was mentioning the fact that John Divoli, one of the selectors with the management team this year, was giving him a lift over and back to Dublin, and he was doing that for Intercounty, but he wants to play for the foreseeable future for Kilmico Crokes. I think, look, it's no coincidence he goes and joins the team who've got the best chance of winning the Dublin Championship this year. Yeah, and my, my, my biggest issue with this is what is what, what does this mean if you're a Kilmacud Crokes club person? I mean, is this how you want to win you know, games and win All-Irelands by having um, players that are basically marquee players from out of the county? And what does that mean for... Um, I know Stephen Cluxon definitely had issues with this in the past. Like, it should be your mates, it should be your local... Uh, you know the local lads who you've soldiered with uh, from underage effectively aspiring to play for the club this this idea of as you say like a super club um, 
is it still the club that you supported all along where you wanted like um, the local lads your your best mate's son your best mate's daughter to be playing stuff like that I, I don't know how this would you know sit with me if I were a Croaks uh, club person or a Croaks player who's likely to be relegated to the bench or taken out of the panel potentially because Shane Walsh is arriving that's more of an issue for me whereas Clicarne Clumburn I mean there's not much they can do about it tiny club in North East Galway um, so I think this is more about Shane than anything else as well I think this is Shane's idea of what he wants to do I don't think the vast majority of the Galway panel would do this but Shane is an individual he's an amazing footballer and uh, it is what it is but I, I don't think it's going to go down particularly well in Galway I got, got texts from people in fairly high places in Gaelic games as we begin to were astounded by this and um, they'd be from traditional counties and I think that'll be reflected in Galway as well but if Shane wants to do it, Shane wants to do it I'm just not sure um, it's going to go down that well in terms of um, how he's I don't know how he's uh, perceived in terms of the Galway scene because I think your club is your club at the end of the day Yeah, um, get your views in particularly on the uh, YouTube live comments at the moment what you think about Shane Walsh going to Chemical Crooks it seems to me a great move for Chemical even though a player is going to miss out from the first team it bolsters their chances massively and uh, players have been moving in particularly into Dublin since the year dot of the GA and transferring in um, albeit it's much easier probably to travel elsewhere now but what do you think about Shane Walsh going to Chemical Crooks your standards are very high on the performance rankings this weekend uh, you You've put the beaten All-Ireland finalist Kerry into the red as well. Yeah, um, I did get a bit of help from uh, Colm now with these performance rankings, but I think in fairness to Kerry, they'll have a lot of regrets because of the start that they had and um, the fact that they were so, so well beaten in the second half. It's, I, it's very, very difficult for a team against the physicality of Meath and this kind of winning machine that they've become allied to a defensive structure that's very, very hard to break down once you start falling behind. I think maybe Kerry, um, you know, this cliche that you can start a game too well, but I think it, they were probably a bit mentally shot that their lead was eroded so fast and they'll have massive regrets. Um, I hope they got a good homecoming last night in Kerry. It was a horrible, horrible day. Um, I was actually travelling against the bus as it was coming down and saw the team bus. I think they were stopping off in Castle Island and um, Kerry was strange the weekend. It was horrible uh, for two of the three days and yesterday was a, was a really, really wet day. I hope they turned out to see them. And I think with Kerry, maybe as much as their performance rankings uh, aren't favourable, will I think they'll have learnings from this. Like me, they'll be wondering, how do we kind of build on this legacy with we're losing players. We've gotten into the win habit, but I think Kerry will definitely learn from this and come back. Um, they have very, they have a very good forward line that probably didn't perform as it would like to on the day, um, but they will definitely have a lot of regrets as well after the start that they had. Yeah, like after Louise Nemeritic puts the ball in the net, five minutes gone, you're one two mm. to no score up against the defending champions. But in a way, it kind of poked the bear from Mead because poked they had a very bear, good spell yeah. after that, and then. Mead's defence we'll talk about this at Molsey a bit later on were so good in the second half particularly in the 35th minute on Kerry really struggled uh, to create chances in front of goal and then Mead had that bit of a finish in them as well which is uh, seeing them go back to back like to me this story is remarkable John when you consider we'll talk about Mead a little bit further up in the rankings but to go five years in a row in All-Ireland finals you know you have to lose a couple before winning the intermediate and now winning two seniors in a row there's no more fairy tale story probably around than going from, you know, nearly runs in the intermediate to now being the best team in the country back to back years. It's totally inspirational, and like even even Asher in the final, like what odds were they? I mean, they, they weren't. They were kind of like young upstarts going into the final and weren't expected. And now, sort of um, twelve months later, you're talking about them like absolutely hammer and carry and having a, a smattering of players that are essentially in their twenties and have, I suppose. 
there, there are definitely aspects of the men's game that they've uh, embraced in terms of that defence defense structure. I'm fascinated to see what Andy Moyle says because I, I, I thought uh, Vicky Wall's comments about the rules of the game and you know she, she kind of plays on the edge where the game is going. There was very little physicality allowed. That's not yeah. having to go with um, Maggie Farley, the referee, because she's applying the rules of the game. Yeah, absolutely. But it was so soft-sarty in the second half and there were so many hits that were like, to me seem very fair and they're the type of things that you want to see in the game where the ball is getting turned over and big tackles are going in but constantly it was just free after free after free so then you look at you know so Vicky Wall and Murray basically clash in terms of their comments afterwards and I think this is this is really really intriguing as to where this game is going because it's getting better so fast um, that it is going to have to probably back down in terms of the rules you know say that the rules are right are actually I would tend to agree with Vicky Wall like Vicky Wall has gotten her move and she's the marquee player in the game now because of that way that she plays because of that all action energy physicality and if Vicky were to be like you know basically given freeze against her yellow cards like left right and centre she wouldn't be the player that she is so there's an existential question there where is this game going to go so that that's probably the big talking point I think out of the final because it became a bit of a mismatch in the end Yeah just before we get into Amber a couple of the comments coming in the YouTube uh, Sean's been contact Crokes only one outside player in last year's championship uh, super club but all homegrown uh, Noel Cal on the other side totally agree the fact that he's joining a super club leaves a very bad taste in the mouth right Amber then I had a feeling this was going to happen on Friday. Uh, we were talking to Sligo Rovers and we were chatting to Conan Byrne about St. Pat's. And the feeling was, Johnny, that after their European exploits on Thursday, they had to win their respective games in the FAI Cup at the weekend. Because aside from the Copen and Pat's case trying to defend it, this was a very important avenue to potentially get back into European qualifiers next year. And both slipped up. Uh, this is I, I think this is mad. Like so you had the non league clubs in the FEI Cup Wheel were given absolute batterings and some of the betting moves around those games would suggest that they were entirely predictable and I think that's worrying because you know you need a bit of a romance. The romance we got from the competition was the first division teams beating um exalted Premier Division rivals. So like how can Sligo Rovers go from beating Motherwell on aggregate to losing at home to U C D in the league and then um losing at home to uh, Wexford, albeit after extra time? Now I tip Wexford in the race and post to win this game. You actually lost the bet because they won after extra time, but I was expecting them to give them a good game because Wexford are uh, they they've some nice players. I think Ian Ryan is a good manager and there is that, I mean, the energy that was in the showgrounds on Thursday and thinking of next week, there is that kind of potential that Sligo um, might drop their guard a bit. And John Russell did make some changes, and that's that's fair enough. But for them and Pats, Pats like conceded three goals at home to Watford in the first half. Paddy Barter then came back for his first game of the season, um, and maybe the, some of their changes backfired. But I was thinking here, if Pats hadn't done what they had done in, in Europe, this would be a disastrous result, because they're not having a great time in the league. They're doing okay, but they finished second last season. And there has been a little bit of talk that Tim Clancy would have been under a little bit of pressure I didn't particularly buy into that but if, if this hadn't been preceded by the European results he definitely would be under pressure because they won the cup last year um, and they're knocked out at the first hurdle it's an avenue back into Europe that's realistic the league is, is realistic for both Pats and Sligo but it's odds against us for both of them at the moment that they qualify through the league and to go down to teams in the first division that let's be honest are not even in the title race really Watford have had a patchy campaign Wexford are clinging on to a hope of finishing in the playoffs. I think Wexford might just get into the playoffs. They, they've been in yeah. good, good form recently as well, but it, like the thing that really I noticed at the weekend, Johnny, were the amount of Sligo fans who were bemoaning the fact that some of their fellow Sligo fans went along, queued up to get the tickets for the Viking game, and then didn't stay around for the FAI Cup game. 
Yeah, I I mean, like uh, this this it's not it's not a good image in fairness. We'd uh, we'd images in in one game of of fans kind of falling through um, you know a fence onto the pitch as well, which which wasn't great. But this this kind of notion of going to the game and leaving. It almost like it's almost like the players saw that and it brought them down because the fans certainly brought Sligo up. It was an amazing atmosphere last Thursday. I guess if it's your only way to get a ticket, maybe they had family things on that day. People aren't going to go to every game. You're not going to get knocked for not going to a game. But it's just not a great kind of um, doesn't set a great agenda, does it? To go along the team is playing and just go home because the cup is the cup. Like I'm a Go United fan, will I was. Um, absolutely thrilled that Galway United got a relatively easy draw. Uh, ended up winning seven 0 against Bluebell. Two of the teams that we would genuinely fear are now out of the competition. Since 1991, Galway United haven't been to a cup final, rarely been to a semi final, and to be in the Viva Stadium would be amazing. So, like, I think it's 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 hurtful to the FAI Cup for fans just to go along on the base of tickets for a European game. And I'm praying now the draw is today that Galway United get a good draw. On the flip side of that, the draw will be made as well for the uh, the next round of the Conference League. So, Pats and Sligo who are preparing for um, big games against uh, Norwegian and Bulgarian opposition this week will have an idea uh, what lies in store if they get through that but one thing that won't lie in store for them is the last 16 game in the FAI Cup yeah alright let's take a look then at where we're going in the green we kind of already gave one of these away that Mead were going to be in the green we're going to talk about Mead in a lot more detail the other team that you've put in the green Johnny along with Mead were the two big winners from Sunday afternoon and that's the English women's team winning Euro 2022 yeah, and um, you know, I think this has uh, been the coronation of, a, of an amazing tournament. Uh, listen to the uh, comments from the head coach this morning. Uh, the booze culture may be a little bit of a revelation after the game. I think we can relate to that. They were all drinking beers in the dressing room, but you really seem to unite a country together, Will. And um, this has been a, a victory not for not only for them, but for the tournament itself and for the women's game. I think, and where it can possibly go. I genuinely do think that what they have done for young girls around the world and around Europe is totally amazing that they can dream go out into their back garden and uh, want to be footballers now whereas they might you know 10 20 years ago might even have been in their heads this has been mass media exposure of an event that has been thoroughly justified it's been justified by the figures watching it people who are clicking uh, online to listen to read stories about it and uh, obviously the England team deserved the plaudits this is a some really good teams in this tournament and uh, obviously the Royals as well where where would you how could you leave them out Right. Well, look, we'll talk about England in a lot more detail a little bit later on the programme. They were your Gillette Labs performance rankings. Royals as in Mead there. That wasn't actually uh, a joke. I thought we were talking about family. Prince William and... Uh, what happened there? The other prince. Um, probably not for air on OTBM, I would imagine, in either case, what's been happening ah. uh, with the two princes who are the next in line for the throne. There we go. Revelations all around this morning. Yeah. Um, OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Up next, OTB's Formula One guy, Shane Hannum, will be along to talk about the weekend's Hungarian Grand Prix. First up, here is Kerry's All-Ireland winning manager, Jack O'Connor, who was discussing the majesty of David Clifford on Saturday's Off the Ball. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. Has got such huge admiration within the county, within the country, Jack. And um, when you read anything about David, it, it seems like he always strives to improve his game all the time. Do you find that? Look, he's a remarkable young man. I mean, you have to take into consideration that he's doing this under the most extreme pressure. And so that's 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 the sign of a great, great player, a great man. It was like, you know, it was like it was like '97. You know, the pressure Kelly were under to end the famine and and the display of Morris Fitz that year. It's in the same kind of category because uh, you know the weight of expectation is on these men to produce and. He does it, David Clifford does it time after time. He jumps every hurdle that's put in front of him. 
and sure that's a sign of a great man and he seems to embrace it Jack because he's fist pumping with the crowd he seems to thrive on it a bit as well ah he does look he's, he's um, just a remarkably uh, mature young lad and and um, just got a great temperament. I, 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 I'm here in the morning just before we had our final few words before we got on the bus. I, uh, I sat down with him. He was drinking a cup of coffee, and I swear to God, he was going for a walk in the park. You know, he was so relaxed. So that's that's a great that's a great uh, trait to have to have that temperament. That must have relaxed you as well, Jack. Jeez, I don't know, no, John. <laughs> how, how, rela- how relaxed we want to have to relax, you know, when you know what's on the line. But yeah. look, we did our best. We did our best. You, you, you have to get the, you have to get the, the combination right between between being relaxed and, and and being up for it, you know. Jack O'Connor there in conversation with John Duggan on Saturday's off the ball. Now we are at the midway point of the Formula One season. It's got that possibility of being a runaway title success this year for Max Verstappen. Probably not going to get the drama of last season with it going down to the final day. That is because Max Verstappen is now 80 points clear of Charles Leclerc following his victory in the Hungarian Grand Prix. He went past Leclerc twice during the race, coming from 10th place after engine trouble early in the weekend. Max Verstappen winning the Hungarian Grand Prix and he can put the feet up now for the summer break and come back knowing that just some second place finishes in the last nine races of the season will see him crowned as back-to-back champion. I'd like to say that Shane Hannon is with us. Shane, how are you getting on? Everything's lads. Um, we're going to talk about Vettel as well, announcing his retirement. One of the real stars of the sport of over the last 20 years, and he's going to be replaced by Fernando Alonso next season. But just to ask you about Verstappen first. Given the weekend that was in it, remember Lewis Hamilton last year when he had all his issues and went way back in the grid and uh, went on to win, and we were saying that's the type of fighting performance you get from a world champion. For Max Verstappen, to have the miserable start to the weekend that he did, the engine trouble on Saturday and for him to come pretty much in the middle of the grid and win and put himself in such a strong position. Where does this rank among the Max Verstappen wins? Yeah, it's a fair point. And like the fact that he started, the fact that he started 10th on the grid as well, it highlights, I guess, how dominant Red Bull are. The fact that he can come from 10th, win, and not just win, Will, but win comfortably, let's mm. be honest. I mean, an eighth win in 13 races for Verstappen at this stage and a 28th victory of his career for Red, for Red Bull. But no, you raise a fair point. Like a lot of F- Formula One commentators, reporters have been kind of querying where does this rank in terms of his greatest ever wins of those 28. And like Christian Horner was asked it after the race uh, on Sunday and he said it's right up there. And like the fact that he comes from the from, from 10th in the grid, as you said, probably adds to that. I mean, it, 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 there's an element with Verstappen now, I think after last year and, and clinching that title in Abu Dhabi, that the weight is off his shoulders. He's almost this driver now in this second year, the year after winning the title for the first time, kind of can relax in some ways. He's a, he's a, He knows he's a Formula One world champion. He'll retire as that. But he, he, he wanted to see this battle with Ferrari kind of develop a little bit more on Sunday. Probably a track in, in Budapest as well that maybe in advance of the race he thought might favour the, the Ferrari cars. But... It just didn't happen. And, and once again, Ferrari's decision-making, you'd have to call into question. But that's not to take away from Verstappen's performance because, yeah, absolutely will. Like, from the moment go, you're thinking, you know, he's doing the, the kind of warm-up laps, judging the tyres, uh, deciding where they want to go with that. And and really, Red Bull's decision-making was was top-notch on Sunday. And it's it's been that way for, for the last couple of years. So, yeah, I would say it's probably... It's certainly in his top three performances of all time. It's probably his, his his best performance considering he came from 10th on the grid. Yeah, plenty of criticism from the short term about Ferrari's tactics at the weekend, but they have slipped away from where they were early in the season. There was a genuine feeling two or three races in 
that they had the car to potentially give Charles Leclerc the platform for a title contention at least but mm. now even though he's still in second place in the championship standings it feels the Ferrari have really slipped off like uh, if you're a, a Scuderia Ferrari fan at the moment you're tearing your hair out Will because you, you look back at I, I'm, I'm even thinking back this year to, to Monaco and to Silverstone and both times you had a pole position for Charlotte Claire. You had a track that seemed to favour them, uh, a car that was clearly in good shape, and yet both times they converted that pole into a fourth position finish. Um, and, and yes, you can blame the car, and certainly that the team principal Mattia Bonato queried the car after the race on Sunday and said, "Look, it's not perfect." Uh, Charlotte Claire tried to put a a brave face on it after the race on Sunday. He says, "Look, it, there's still been big performance." Uh, improvements from Ferrari this year compared to last and you can't argue with that but he admitted himself even that that they still have serious problems to fix because I'm just like I'm thinking about the performance on Sunday in particular and like Red Bull before the race were considering the hard tyre and had originally planned a start on it but obviously Verstappen and co went with with, with the wise decision in the end struggled for grip for Stappen and Perez in the early stages of the race on these soft tyres on the reconnaissance laps changed their minds Ferrari and this is the thing about Formula 1 I guess sometimes when you're when your direct opponents go with one option you nearly have to go with the other option in, in some instances because you have to differentiate yourself you have to try and take the risk and maybe see does the, does the other tyre pay off like the car just wasn't performing well for Ferrari on Sunday like then they chose to cover Verstappen, fit the hard tyres. Leclerc hadn't wanted to as well, and that's the great thing about Formula 1 is you get to hear this uh, action over the car radio and, and the disagreements between driver and, and, and team. Um, but that was the turning point. Stopping for, for the hard was the turning point. They probably should have reacted to what Verstappen and Red Bull were doing uh, and didn't. So yeah, the, the decision-making from Ferrari, Will, has certainly contributed to the fact that they're 80 points behind Verstappen in the, in the title race and it's all but over. Are we getting to the point as well now, Shane, where there's some positive signs for Mercedes, though? Um, George Russell drove pretty well. I was watching qualifying here in the office on Saturday. Um, obviously, Lewis Hamilton has said, look, they're a little bit off the pace this year, but he's starting to see some encouraging signs as they go into the second half of this season. Yeah, for sure. And, and like, Toto Wolff and Mercedes will be taking a lot of uh, a lot of satisfaction from, from Ferrari's shortcomings in recent races because you, you've, it was a terrible July for Ferrari. And as you mentioned, like we're now at this halfway point in the season. We've got a bit of time until the next race in Spa in Belgium. But but from Mercedes' perspective, it, like a while back it was looking it was looking pretty grim for this season. Uh, Hamilton's performances were, were, as you mentioned, like nowhere near as consistent probably as George Russell. He was he was Mr. Top 5 for, for quite some time there. Um, but that, that pole from Saturday as like of course they'd have liked to have turned that into a win in Budapest uh, and and let's be honest it's a track where, where Hamilton I think he's had eight, eight wins at Budapest in the past so he's the most dominant driver at that track um, but really the cars are certainly uh, improving as to where they were you know even a month or two ago so you saw George Russell on Saturday as you mentioned in qualifying holding off those Ferraris uh, and as I said it was a track that the Ferrari cars would have been quite quite fancying in advance of it but uh, you know Hamilton abandoned his, his final qualifying lap when the, when the DRS overtaking failed to, to aid it like could they have pushed on he probably regretted that decision and, and listening to, to Hamilton after the, the Saturday qualifying as well he probably realised if he had kept going and done that final qualifying lap he maybe could have qualified on the grid a little bit higher um, he would have lost that, that 0.3 second advantage that DRS was going to give him but 
the fresher tires like could he have pushed Verstappen for the win had he maybe started fourth or fifth on the grid rather than seventh like Toto Wolff was asked that afterwards and he said like maybe uh hindsight is, is obviously 2020 but uh yeah certainly positives for Mercedes maybe could have pushed on a bit if Hamilton had had done that final qualifying lap on on Saturday but certainly things are looking a lot better for Mercedes than they were a while back. Just on Verstappen, at 24, like where could he be, uh, where could he go to in terms of the ranks of the really great drivers on this trajectory? Yeah, like, you, you've obviously got to, first of all, I guess, Johnny, become a multiple world champion. He's on course to do that this year. That Like, there's there's no way anyone's going to catch him. It would be fairly unfathomable that someone would catch him at this, at this halfway point with an 80-point advantage. But, like, in terms of the greats, like, I'm even looking here. I was I was reading last night. There's um, obviously you get all every so often the the rankings and everyone has their different opinions. Rankings of the greatest drivers. Uh, like he's not he's not in that top ten for me at the at the minute. Schumacher, Hamilton, even Vettel, who we'll talk about as well, are all there thereabouts. But twenty twenty eight wins at, at at this stage of his career at such a young age um, puts him on a serious serious marker. And and like I love. I love the young, the, the old videos and photos of, of uh, Max with his dad Yoss at the tracks when mm. when Yoss was was a driver in Formula One himself in the nineties and and you see the 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 great photograph of of Max as a kid meeting Michael Schumacher and you're thinking, you know, this kid he's gone on to be one of one of the greats and obviously he has to go on and do it now and push on but I mean for me that the the ceiling for him is just uh, like to go to go from this young like we, we I remember Sebastian Vettel when he kind of came through. I think he became the youngest driver to win a Formula One race in in 2008 or nine. Verstappen went on to break that record, and it's kind of like it's kind of like the Ronnie O'Sullivan, Stephen Hendry argument in snooker. Like Hendry had all the records, um, but Ronnie over time has just ticked off one after the other, and I think it's going to be the same with Max. Like he's just targeting all of these records, and if he keeps ticking them off, he's going to be number one. You knew that Shen Hannan knew his records there. Not just the uh, youngest to win a Formula 1 Grand Prix, but he became the youngest world champion uh, when he won his first. And then he goes on to become you know, the guy with the third most race victories in the history of the sport, Shen. Where do you rank him? I mean, four world titles, obviously look, the best of that time coming at Red Bull, maybe a bit disappointed with his time at Ferrari, and now he's going to go out as an Aston Martin driver when he retires at the end of the season. But where do you rank Vettel uh, among the greats? You've obviously given away you have him in the top ten. I, I personally, and I know a lot of other Formula One fans, some people will disagree here, but for me, Vettel is, is, is third on the all-time list behind behind uh, Hamilton and Schumacher. Hold um, on now, before you do this now, where are you putting Hamilton and Schumacher at the top? Who's one and two? <laughs> I was afraid you'd ask me that. Like Numbers-wise, a lot of people will now, because Hamilton has, has got up there with, with Schumacher, probably probably put him ahead of him. But, but for me, Michael Schumacher is the GOAT. Um like I can't, I can't, I can't put Hamilton ahead of him, and and that's that's not an anti-British bias. That there's nothing, nothing of the sort. I'm actually a bit of a Lewis Hamilton fan. Now, does he go ahead um, of Schumacher if he wins another couple of world titles? Because he's already like matched and surpassed many of Schumacher's records already. But say he goes a few out in front himself, do you reconsider this if we have this conversation in two or three years' time? Yeah, like. I think so, I, and like a lot of those records that that Schumacher had were were kind of deemed unsurpassable for for quite for quite some time. Like, no one has more wins than Hamilton. No one has more pole positions than Hamilton. So, like as I'm talking out loud, a lot of people are going to be thinking, "Well, he's clearly the, the greatest driver of all time." Then, but uh, there was just there's just something, and there's probably an element, and we're all guilty of this, lads, in every sport that we follow. Uh, nostalgia bias. Um, like just that red livery, Michael Schumacher, the 1990s. Uh, boy zone in the tracks 
Like it's th- these those were the days. And like I even before before Schumacher's ter- terrible um, skiing accident in 2013, um, I was big in as you lads have probably heard before, like big into autographs and kind of collecting signatures from mm. from people in the in the 2008 nine sort of period. Wrote a letter to Michael Schumacher. Um, not expecting a thing back and got back a lovely signed photograph and obviously unfortunately since that accident of course Michael um, incapacitated not able to, to sign anything to post for photographs to meet fans we haven't even heard from Michael it's all obviously guarded secrecy for for health reasons by the family but uh, for my own biased reasons I have to have Schumacher as number one His argument there John by the way is the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James one it doesn't matter how many records LeBron James <laughs> makes Michael Jordan will always be the greatest I very rudely put you onto a tangent there, Shane, where you're about to say that Vettel was in third and justify why he's in third place ahead of uh, some of the other greats of the sport. Yeah, like dominated Vettel from, from 2010 to 2013, like those four world titles in a row. Like we think of we think of Hamilton in recent years when, when he was kind of vying with Rosberg and even Bottas to an extent. Um, at Mercedes, and, and and you think, oh, the sport is getting boring, and that's why that's why a lot of fans came on board, maybe with with Verstappen and Hamilton having that that battle last year. Like Verstappen had a number of battles; his career probably slowed down with the regulation changes to the cars, and then a Ferrari. Like Vettel would have, for me, really reached a pinnacle if he if he pushed on and with Ferrari won another world title, and and for two years. From what I remember, he challenged Hamilton for a world championship, didn't quite get over the line, and he really, really Vettel wanted to win a world championship uh, in those red colours. But like, 50, like fifty-three wins, like fifty-three wins for Vettel. Like I've, I've, I've already said, Verstappen is twenty-eight, but fifty-three wins in a car, fifty-seven pole positions. He's over three thousand career points. Like anyone who says Sebastian Vettel is not an all-time great doesn't care for or know their Formula One. Like it's hard to believe that he. He made his debut back in back in two thousand and seven, but those those Red Bull years and that that Christian Horner uh, love for Sebastian Vettel that you have, and I think lads as well, um, and I know this is something that you that you talk about a, a lot, Johnny as well, uh, like his reasons for for announcing his retirement now, and, and he's he's going to step aside at the end of this uh, this championship, but he's thirty five years of age. He's he's talked about the fact that he wants to spend time with his family and all that is understandable, but but he he's done a lot of great things off track, and that's something that Lewis Hamilton kind of. Uh, paid tribute to to Vettel in the last number of days when 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 he announced that he was going to retire, like the 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 carbon footprint of of Formula One uh, is certainly one of the the things that gives me a little bit of unease as a Formula One fan. Like I love the entertainment, I love watching it, but of course you think about all these not just the cars and and the races itself, but the the fact that all of these people are moving from one country to another. Uh, so much gear and equipment and people and human resources that has to go into to packing up this stuff, um, and that's one of the things that 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 uh, Sebastian Vettel has has said has made him a little bit bit uneasy. Like he's he's been an outspoken advocate of of sustainable technologies in recent years, he, and that that's one of the things certainly that's influenced his decision. Like he he says uh, he said in in recent days, my passion comes with certain aspects that I've learned to dislike. They might be solved in the future, but the will to apply that change has to grow much much stronger. And has to be leading to action today. Like you might say he's a hypocrite because he's made a career and a, and a living out of Formula One. But I think he raises a very, very important point. It's something that maybe we're not talking about enough in the sport. That's inspirational. I, 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 you can change their views over time as well. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't aware of that because it's... Um, I mean, there were protests at the Tour de France this year. And uh, one part of me was saying, well... I mean, it's a cycling event, but like the cycling, the tour, the Tour de France's carbon footprint isn't great. But like, I mean, you look at football, all the the teams going around Europe playing games. That's inspiration from Vettel because obviously, you know, they're in they're in cars or whatever. But there's a lot more to it than that. 
Yeah, and and like there there are we all know that 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 there are things that make us uneasy about different levels of sports sports washing. The Saudis, Formula One itself last year had had you know rocket strikes near the the track and points at which drivers couldn't see on the track because they thought there was smoke coming from a car, but it was from a missile a number of miles away from the track. But but the climate change one and and the point that Vettel raises is is one that a lot of Formula One fans kind of put the fingers in the ears, ignore it, don't talk about it. And 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 like people at like Lewis Hamilton have, and that's why I'm a bit of a Lewis Hamilton fan as well. And I, 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 he is like Marmite and people give out about him, of course, and his attitude. But uh, he speaks up about, about issues off track, whether it's, you know, gay rights, rights for women. Um, you know, he, he backs Vettel in this, this climate change fight as well. And I think that that comes like at a, at a certain age and vintage of a, for a Formula One driver, um, and look, Vettel's in his mid thirties now. He's wise enough to know to know the impact of his words, and he he's made a lot of people in the sport sit up and take notice. But I think, and like you mentioned, the Tour de France as well, Johnny. Like, of course, Formula One isn't the only sport with with a horrific carbon footprint, but it certainly has. To, like, I can't think of a sport in terms of the movement of personnel around the world that that is probably worse for the environment overall. Um, so certainly it, it, it's a positive thing that Vettel has spoken up. So he's not just one of the greats on the track, but I think in terms of personality, Sebastian Vettel is, is extremely likeable and, and an important voice in the sport as well. Yeah, he's unlikely to be using Taylor Swift's uh, private jet. And also slowly but surely, Shane is coming around to the idea of putting Lewis Hamilton as the gold ahead of Michael <laughs> Schumacher. I think we had a few more minutes. That's where you go. Shane, great stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, many lads. Uh, Tom Hunt in contact on the YouTube live comments. Well, Big Max fan, but he was helped big time by Ferrari's strategy and not for the first time this season. A reminder that Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner here of OTB. Each week, we are giving a lucky viewer a €100 voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness in an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. All you have to do is like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste. It gives you the best on-the-go coffee experience on the road and it is available at Apple Green today. Now, coming up after the break, Liverpool legend Mark Lawrenson will be with us to take a look back at Jurgen Klopp's side beating Manchester City in the Community Shield. But first, Kieran Cunningham and Gavin Cooney joined Stephen Doyle on the Sunday Paper Review where the lads talked about Liverpool's victory in the Community Shield. Uh, first blood to Nunes and that of course is a reference to the brand new Liverpool striker Darwin Nunes who um, had a real debut I'm not do you, do you count it as a debut it's a Community Shield match it's not really a debut is it it's, uh, I think you'll definitely be counting it yeah yeah I was, I was speaking to the lads earlier about Roy Keane he was getting very worked up about how he was enjoying the match because it was so competitive yesterday he seemed to really like that kind of the, the two teams taking it very seriously I think Klopp summed it up before the game and said it's an important game if you win it doesn't really matter if you lose yeah yeah so. I think they, they seem to deliberately celebrate it a lot like it seemed to be a choice. Is it because I'm saying this, lads? It's I think it's because it's City. Yeah. Yeah, City in, in a game that there is a medal and a trophy, even if it's a meaningless one. But I actually watched it and I was trying to remember any other community or charities that I've ever watched. I can't, I can't remember <laughs> anyone because I saw somebody put up a clip of a Risa goal against Chelsea. Yeah. I think it might have been when Liverpool last won it. And he ran the land to the pitch and scored an amazing goal. And I think. I just have no memory of seeing that. Like it's one of those games that passes you by, yeah, um, and it's instantly forgettable. But I think because of the Nunes thing, of Manny leaving, of the hangover from the last week of the season, losing the two trophies in such uh, you know tough circumstances, I think Liverpool probably put a bit of store in it in, in just starting to 
Like the, I think the biggest positive for them was how sharp Salah looked. Like Bunez yeah. was good and Carvalho looks a good signing, but Salah looked so razor sharp. Yeah. And there was one stage, the three of them, uh, Diaz had the ball on the left wing, Nunes was going down the middle and Salah on the right. And they were all bursting forward at pace and it was just electric. You thought, wow. OTB AM. Well, in many ways, it was a story of the two big money signings of the summer for Liverpool and Man City at the weekend. Very unusual. The game played at Leicester's King Power Stadium on Saturday evening. Liverpool coming out on top by three goals to one. Darwin Nunes taking his chance when he came off the bench, also won a penalty, while Erling Haaland fluffed his chances at the other end for City. So the first piece of silverware going to Liverpool. First time they've lifted the Community Shield since 2006. Delighted to say that we've got former Republic of Ireland and Liverpool defender Mark Lawrence with us to look back at the game. Mark, how are you getting on this morning? Um, all good, thank you very much. You kind of a, a little bit unusual watching the Community Shield on Saturday. The fact it was away from Wembley, the time that it was mm. moved into. Obviously, we had a national anthem which just about got in under the booze before the game actually started. Uh, but the game itself, I thought Liverpool played pretty well. Yeah, they did. I mean, you know, Klopp still very much looked at these games, and, it, and it's just training, and it's as much as possible. It's as near a competitive game you can get in terms of pre-season. And you know, this, this was all, always called the Charity Shield, which and the whole idea about this was the fact that, you know, the two teams that played at Wembley, obviously the Cup winners and, and the League winners, raised all this money for charity. So, um, and it's been slightly devalued over the years with, with, you know, the Premier League, et cetera. But it's, from the players' point of view, I mean, he'll, be, he'll still be training them hard this week, Klopp. They played a, a game the next day, which was mostly the kids against, I think, a team from, from Austria. But he's just, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, come off the back of them beating Austria and, and he, he has triple sessions. This is, this is the big, that kind of last week, 10 days, um, is the big sort of push in terms of fitness. And, you know, this is preparing them, not, not for the first game of the season, this is preparing all these players for the season. Um, he's always done this since he came to the club and, because of the way they play with the intensity, etc., it's it's you know it's just so so important to him. And yeah, they'll be they'll be, they'll be delighted that they've won it, but he, he won't be singing about it, will he? No, no. I think he um, made a very telling comment in Austria last week when he was asked about this game, and he said, "Look, you win the Community Shield, it's great. You lose, it's no big deal." I think that's no. the way most people probably look at it when the uh, season is coming around. Well, may- yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing is, I think we used to share it if we drew. Yeah. Now it's penalties because so, I mean, you have a spectacle, that, yeah. That, that tells you everything you need to know. Well, well done, boys. Go home and start the season next week with no trophies. It probably, the unusual nature of it as well, I know the impact of Wembley being in use on Sunday moved the game to the mm. power, but you made a very good point that a lot of teams last weekend played two friendlies on the Saturday and Sunday. So you're just trying to get that work in, but everything's kind of been front-loaded for the start of this year. Premier League starts this Friday and there's a lot of games to be played before they break off for the World Cup. I mean, we're heading into the most unusual of campaigns, Mark. Yeah. Um, well, unprecedented, isn't it? So, you know, in terms of the managers, as, as much as they think they've got the planning right, who knows? I mean, they'll be delighted, all, all the top managers, if, if, you know, quite a few of their players actually aren't in the World Cup. Um, so, therefore, they can't get injured. So, so that will be good. And maybe, maybe you know, it might change their thinking insofar as, look, we can really go hell for leather from the first game until whenever they stop and take the break for the World Cup. And, um, you know, the ones who aren't 
involved in it can just kind of get the feet up for a little while and push on again then in terms of the second half of the season. So it is unprecedented, but it, it is what it is and it's the same for everybody. How close bar do you think that the Liverpool team will be to the team he plays? Obviously, um, with the exception of Adrian, but that outfield 10 that he picked, how close is that? Um, I think it's probably almost there. I, um, I remember seeing Nunes in the two games that... Uh, Liverpool played against Benfica in the in the Champions League, and certainly in the return leg at Anfield, he, he roasted them. He roasted the two centre backs. I don't think Van Dijk played. It might have been Matip and um, and the other guy uh, whose name Gomez, escaped. maybe. No, it wasn't Gomez. It was. Yes, Canate. Canate. I was going to say Kante. Canate and. Honestly, could have had four or five goals, and I think that they'd already decided that they wanted him anyway. And I know I heard before they were saying, you were saying something about the fact that how sharp Salah looked. Well, he's probably got three hundred and seventy-five thousand reasons every week why he's looking really sharp, isn't he? But you know they've lost Mane, but are they really going to miss him? I mean, Firmino as well, if he can stay fit. I mean, he just got such competition for places, but it's it's this searing pace that the three of them have got, um, which obviously will frighten so many teams. And I, and I know there's always going to be a comparison between Nunes and, and Harlem, but they're completely different players. Um, I think that in terms of Harlem as well, if we can just go on about that, is that it's, he, needs, he needs a lot of grass sort of to run onto. He's, he's not like you can't really knock it up to him and hold it. He's very much, he runs on to everything and he's a different style of player. I mean, he's going to score loads and loads of goals. Whether... Whether that changes the way City play and whether that makes maybe even gives them a little bit of a hiccup, I think it's a worry for, uh, for Pep Guardiola. And don't forget, these, these teams just virtually win every single game. So, you know, like last year, obviously, um, Liverpool were a few games behind them and, and City had all those points, but Liverpool, <coughs> excuse me, almost caught them. I wonder whether it might be the other way around this season. Be- yeah. Before we get to sorry, before we get to Haaland, I think you're, you're raising a, a really, really compelling point there, Laurel. But if do you think they're going to be like roughly Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago with that front three? I mean, how ex- how exciting is that to watch that team? Their two fullbacks are effectively wingers, so you have oh, yeah. two centre backs, Fabinho to an extent, load of attacking players. Yeah, well, with Fabinho, Fabinho makes them three centre backs. He just he just sits in front of the other two and. He's the kind of, he just sits there watching when they go forward and, and tries, if there are any fires to put out, he puts fires out, basically. That's that's what he does. But he's also, you know, a really good player in, in, in his own right in terms of passing, etc. So uh, they won't change. It's just the way that they are. But I think, you know, we saw last season as well that Thiago was an absolute revelation. And the number of times I've come on this programme and just gone, you know, I just think, I think he's brilliant. I can just watch him play on his own. He's just sensational. He sees things in games that other players, other mortals don't see at all. And it's a very, very important if they keep him fit. And I think also Klopp's not gambling, but hopefully he's, he's probably thinking some of the younger players who were in and out of, this, of the squad last year, he's probably thinking that they should kick on as well this season. By far and away, you know, themselves and City got the two outs. Well, they're the two best clubs in the world at the moment. It'd be interesting to see what Madrid and, and, uh, and Barcelona are like this season. But most, most definitely, these are the two best teams in the world. And 
it's shown week in, week out. So we've seen the debate about City not having a number nine at all. And now Haaland, to me, I, I, I see where you're coming from here. I'm not, like, what a footballer, what a, you know, a bubble of energy and aggression yeah. and goals. But is, is he a City player in, in those nitty-gritty moments? Well, well, we'll we'll soon find out. That's the thing. And I mean, if you know, the manager's very, very clever, Guardiola, and, and he'll, have, he'll have studied him like everybody, but um you just wonder you just wonder with City with him whether whether the kind of the, the players from midfield going forward might have a little bit too many touches for him, if that makes any any um sense. You know, rather than getting a head up and like trying to pass him in straight away. I'm, Sometimes they play a little bit tippy tappy football, and um, be interesting to see, won't it? And, but you know, you feel you feel for him, don't you? I mean, he missed a couple of chances on Saturday, and it's like, oh, they've spent all that money on this fella, and you know, he, he didn't miss this, and he did, and it's like, oh my god, the pressure's nuts, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. It's mad. Yeah, like Pep has played with two number nines that are kind of similar to Erling Haaland in Zlatan when he brought him to Barcelona and that didn't 100% work stylistically and they were getting used to it anyway. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then he left and we all read about what Zlatan had to say about Pep in his book. And then he had Lewandowski at Bayern Munich which was slightly different because they had more pure wingers that were creating chances for him and played to his strengths. There were times when Haaland was making those runs at the weekend mark and things got slowed up a little bit midfield and Grealish took a lot of touches over on the left-hand side to me it seems almost unusual that they let Raheem Sterling leave when they were bringing in Haaland because he's the type of player who could have created the space and actually had the trickery to create chances for him yeah it's a, it's an interesting one with, with Sterling isn't it because um, every time you see him play he just he causes major major problems but the thing is you know, these managers see these players day in day out and there is something in the way that Sterling played, that obviously Guardiola thought, well, you know what, we get big money for him, we, we can let him go. So, um, and I don't, I don't think it's an attitude thing with him because every time he plays, he, he, or he gave of his best at City. But, um, you know, it's one of those with, with Haaland, is, is, can somebody in midfield get the head up? Well, it, it, De Bruyne obviously is the person. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe the whole thing about this is not just Haaland, it's like De Bruyne... Being in, you know, the I don't know the the, the what they call it in um, American football, obviously just, just the quarterback. Mm. That I think that's what he's probably looking at. Think saying to him who who the thing about De Bruyne, I mean, he worked extremely hard, but he's allowed to play all over the pitch. And I think the idea generally, I would have thought, would be he gets on the ball, he has one touch, takes it out with his feet, and then he's he's trying to play it through for Harlan. Look, if if he gets it right. Holland will score 35, 40 goals, but it's a big if. The other players that have been sold, you mentioned Sterling going to Chelsea. Does it speak about City or maybe the way they don't look at some teams as rivals, where Gabriel Jesus and Zinchenko are allowed to go to Arsenal, Sterling is allowed to go to Chelsea. Is that a case of just City don't see them as rivals whatsoever? Yeah. Yeah. So they've just decided, Man City have just decided that good players that they are, they're not good enough for Manchester City. And, you know, there's a question, there's a question mark about Jesus most, most definitely because all of a sudden, being in and out of the team a little bit at City, you know, is it will be Arsenal's number nine and the pre- the pressure is on him. So, uh, you know, let, let's see what he does. I mean, obviously players do get better and they, and they do improve. But um, And I think, you know, it's like 
the thing for City is find another left back every year, isn't it? They've, they've had that many. Um, and I, I think that's probably not, it's not a weak link because they just, they win everything, but it's, it's a, a position where he wishes he had, the manager wishes he, he has or had a better selection for that particular position for me. Yeah, um, Joe Gonzalez is a good player, but he had real problems with Salah at the weekend. Mm. And yeah, that's yeah. the worry. Yeah, well, it, it it is the worry then. But then you know, you know, the manager might say, Guardiola might say, but hold on, generally in games and nearly every single game they play, they have more possession, so um, maybe maybe not as bad. But it's 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 a position I don't think they've ever really filled. Everyone knows who City's right back is every single week. Um, but generally, the left back it, it could it could be anybody. I just like it's it's hard to believe it's coming uh, around so quickly. Like Manchester Manchester City are strong strong favourites. Liverpool are nowhere near them in terms of the betting. Is it is it closer than that, Mark? I, I just I don't see much between the two, and I think Liverpool, in some respects, they have the advantage of the the hurt from last year, if you want to call it that, and the feeling that they. They can actually do this, and City have made changes. Liverpool has been a bit more seamless. I see this being really, really close. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I just I think just the same as last year. I would I would just have, but I would have City's narrow favourites because you know if you look at the game as well towards the end of last season when they really needed to win in in the big moments, they came through. Mm. Um, you know, and Liverpool obviously chased, which is always, always easier because, you know, the, the guys in front, you're always looking over your shoulder and you only need one or two saying, oh, hold on a minute, we might get caught. But, yeah, I think it, I just think it's very, very, very close. And, look, you know, <clears throat> what happens if De Bruyne gets injured for four months? That I think that's, you know, the big thing from City's point of view. Who's going to play in this position? Well, you'll argue there's no one in the world at the moment who's, who's capable of, of playing in that position and running the team and working hard and you know making all the assists and scoring lots of goals, so it, it remains to be seen, doesn't it? And also, you know, the effect of <clears throat> excuse me, the effect of the World Cup. Um, you know, if, if Belgium go all the way, um, what will what will De Bruyne be like for the last four or five months of the league season? It's far better cracking the championship anyway. What about Preston and this Irish contingent? We're all over them this year. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, although we did our we did our normal on Saturday, which was I think we had about three or four chances and couldn't score. But um, yeah, no, it's good, it's great. <clears throat> um, but I don't. <clears throat> I mean, look at looking at the championship this year and, and la- last year. Actually, I think was the work was the, in terms of looking at the teams in the championship. It was probably one of the lowest rated. I would have thought there was, there was so many teams that at some stage could have. Obviously, got promotion. I mean, the likes of Huddersfield, etc., were up there for ages and ages. And I seen them a couple of times, and, and they were just ordinary. So, um, but you think then your own team's got a better chance? But I don't think we finished in terms of signings, Preston. But we're never ever ever going to go mad with with uh, players, and we tend generally to get people on loan, which of course, effectively for, for Nottingham Forest last year, got them up. Um, just hopefully that we can do the same. But we've lost our benefactor. Um, who died unfortunately? Trevor, yeah, Trevor, Trevor Hemmings. So, and he's one of his sons, Craig, is 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 um is the chairman. But Peter Ridsdale runs the whole outfit. And by the way, the, the much maligned Peter Ridsdale um, has done a fab job at Preston, an absolutely fabulous job in terms of getting players in, cutting the wage bill and everything, but being very very competitive. We just 
we don't score enough goals, unfortunately. If we can solve that this year, we won't be far away from the playoffs. I'd much prefer a sporting team like that than just to a team that was embraced by this massive sugar daddy and just threw money at it. And Preston, if Parrot has, and this is the thing, Will, can he make that step up? He was comfortable at League One level. Like, uh, to be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't really expecting Spurs to back him as they have. Can he make that... That get, like the championship is so. This is there with the backing as well, John, about how much this is about Spurs protecting his value, especially because mm. he's playing international football, mm. and how much of it is they genuinely believe the soundings about Harry Kane had a slow start to his career. He was out on loan for quite a while, and then things exploded for him. I, I do see some comparisons between Kane and Paris, um, Laurel, because like Paris, not well, they, they both wear football boots. They, but well. <coughs> Parrot ha- actually has a star quality about him. In, in, I, I see that in him. He just—he's not blessed with amazing pace, which he probably no. did when he was younger. He was probably quicker than the players around him. He's struggled to adapt to the fact that he's not quicker than centre defenders anymore. So, will he be able to make that step up and get? If Parrot has a good season, Preston are one hundred percent on the cusp of the cusp of the playoffs. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, you can't. You know. Comparing him to, to Harry Kane is, is like, you just can't. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's like le- levels, not one level, but levels yeah. above him. But um, he'll get, you know, he'll get loads of chances at Preston, not just obviously chances in terms of scoring goals, but in, in being in the team. Um, and they've got a young manager there, who, uh, Lo- Lowy, who, who basically was a, you know, was a striker himself. So he's very much the fact that, you know, he'll be trying to get the best out of him. It's a good. It's a good deal for him. Do you ever see him going on to play for Tottenham on a regular basis? No, I, I, I don't think. I don't think he has. And if you look at the players that Conte's brought in as well, you just don't. You can't see where he's ever going to fit in. To be honest with you, it's a fantastic move for him. Like fantastic move, one hundred percent. Yeah, this is exactly. Yeah, the and it, you me. know what? He'll be loved there. I mean, you know, obviously, I, I, I try and watch and go to as many games as possible. And the, the thing about there is, is, is. If you play for Preston, as long as you give 100% week in, week out, they can forgive little things like maybe you're not quite quick enough, maybe your touch is brilliant. And, you know, it's like it's like a northern town and it's, it's, mm. it's a little bit dour, but it's like, you know, you go to work and you work hard and you get paid and that's, that's what the supporters are like. But if they happen to get it going, it's also, um, you know, it's a great stadium as well now due to the, obviously to, to Trevor, etc. And it's it's quite intimidating for the opposition when it's full, but unfortunately it's not full too many times. Although this season uh, we've got, what, eight local derbies. So that, that'll also be interesting as well with Burnley and Blackpool and Blackburn and Wigan. So um, that might help us a little bit, hopefully. Yeah, Mairead um, Weaver is watching from LA of all places. Eight hours behind, hours half one, well, half twelve at night in LA. Not a bad place to be watching OTBM this morning. Uh, ask Laura, what do you think about Lin- Lingard going to Forest? It's that one-year deal that Jesse Lingard has taken to go to Nottingham Forest. They're paying him a lot of money to uh, potentially try and turn things around for them this season. Fortunes, absolute fortunes, because you know my relationship with with, with, with David Moyes, and and they wanted him. But Moyes is very much of you know yeah you can you can give somebody so much money but at times it's become ridiculous and, and and they pulled out and you know what was really really interesting about that when when Lingard was there in COVID he was brilliant mm. it was nothing short of brilliant and uh, you know some of the goals and assists and all those kind of things but I remember I remember Moyes, uh, uh, David Moyes saying to me he said the only problem is he said. 
we think he's a lad who likes a night out. And I went, well, yeah, okay. He said, but if you think about it, in COVID, he couldn't go out. And he said he'd stay on in training and all those kind of things. And I'm just a little bit worried if he's gone to Forest for a year, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'll be looking at him and thinking, does he really want to be here? I'd question his career choices too as well, Mark. If if West Ham were interested, and it seemed they were back in January, they were probably interested this summer and signed him on a free transfer if the deal made sense for both sides. As opposed to scrapping at the bottom of the Premier League, he could have went to a West Ham team who've had a couple of good seasons back-to-back. He plays well. He could have put himself back in the picture for the World Cup squad. He was very close to being in the Euro squad last year. Yeah, but doesn't that tell you everything about him? You yeah. know, go, go go and play for Forest, and you're going to scrap every week. And listen, got a good manager. Um, you know, spent a lot of money. Um, but w- will he will he get the support? Will he get the opportunities? Will he get the opportunities in terms of playing? But in terms of chances, and I'm just I look at a player like that, and I just think, you know what? Why is he gone there? As he, as he just, the pound signs are like, wow, and he's made, he's, you know, he's made for the rest of his life. I'm just a little bit worried with, with, with stuff like that. I mean, there's nothing better than, than, than hungry players. And, you know, I was talking to you before about De Bruyne. I mean, how hungry is he? Mm. Um, you know, and I just you think one year, and obviously he's getting bundles and his, his agents will get bundles as well. But um, no, I think it might all end in tears. I hope I'm wrong, but I think it might all end in tears there a little bit. Six months time, he'll be thinking about his next contract as well. That's the killer well, for Forrest if he starts well. Um, another one, Laura, I was just thinking, in this very chair at the weekend, John Duggan made the prediction that Spurs are going to split the top two. He thinks his <laughs> club are going to finish ahead of Liverpool. Now, Spurs have recruited well, but do you think yeah. Spurs can finish ahead of Liverpool? No. <laughs> no. Because, wait, I think I'm probably on with him at the weekend. Good old John. Um, no, I, do, I, I don't. I think they will be, obviously, a lot better a lot more competitive. I don't think you'll see, you know, going to the likes of Burnley on a wet, wet Tuesday night and getting beat 1-0 and those kind of results. I think they will definitely improve on that. But look, the, the two teams are just, they're machines. They really seriously are just machines. And I, and I, I think there's got a really good chance Tottenham are finishing third. But in terms of points, I think they'd be quite a distance away from the top two. Well, look, feel free to argue with John at the weekend on OTB on Saturday. Laura, thanks a million for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. There you go. Uh, Mark Lawrence in there. OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It's time for the sports pages. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean, a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, I Come on, don't, don't be. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> All right, time for us to have a look at the back pages. We've split them. Johnny's got the tabloids across the way. I've got most of the broadsheets here. Going to start with the back of the Irish Daily Mail today. You've got the me captain, Shauna Ennis, at their homecoming in Navan last evening with the Brendan Martin Cup after uh, Mead went back to back. Also, Michael Clifford's piece uh, under that is about Shane Walsh and that statement which came out yesterday afternoon where Walsh said that he wants to go to chemical croaks for the foreseeable future. His transfer is expected to be rubber stamped, but it is pretty much on the eve of the Dublin Championship so he needs this to go through pretty quickly his uh, club uh, Kilkenny and Clumburn had already mentioned that they were against the idea of the transfer Kenny Clumburn but that'd th- be th- did I call him Kilkenny Kenny Clumburn would be interesting yeah wouldn't be a 
That'd be wouldn't quite, be quite the combination, wouldn't it? Wouldn't be a big hurling stronghold now that part of um, Very much so, yeah. Um, I was actually amazed, uh, just reading the Kilcarran Clonburn said it's 700 members, um, which is, you know, and they were comparing that obviously to like Croaks and four tiny. 700 like is not bad for a, like it's a small, small part of uh, North East Galway. You'll have Glen Maddy kind of near, St. Brendan's would be near, um, you'd be edging towards sort of Milltown direction then, but uh, it's a real football area, but it's, you know, like a, a, a part of the country like so many others that would have had a lot of people moving out and this is almost a, a dramatic reflection of that but he's purely moving because he uh, I think he's moving for football reasons really Yeah I think that's My a, view. I think it's a large part of it I mean obviously Shane Walsh has pointed out that he did a lot of travelling back and forth across the Shannon with Galway this year it's a different type of commitment as well. I also, I, yes, down. yes, and sorry, like, would Kilcarran Clilburn are going to accommodate him? They're not going to be saying, like, listen, you have to be down training every second day of the week. Kilcarran Clilburn are going to accommodate Shane Walsh. I'm sorry, like, and you see the Mount Bellew lads and the role that they've had in the inter-county team. I don't think the dailies would ever contemplate something like this. So it's not like people have their head of Shane Walsh having all these drives back to Galway with John Divley, like... I doubt that's the case. I think they would have comfortably accommodated for, for Intercounty, he has to be at every session. But yeah, they're, they're it's not, it's not, exactly. But realistically, particularly if you had a break week in the Championship, I'm sure you'd be like, Shane, stay in Dublin. No yeah, deal. yeah. If, if you want to even have a few points, go on. Like, you, you, you'll still be on the team, put it that way. Like, mm, yeah. Be interesting if it happens. It's interesting if it gets on the chemical croaks. It's a mm. huge ball string to the Leinster Champions if that transfer goes through. Fair, fair point with the texture earlier as well. Like, croaks don't have, uh, um, you know, a load of outside players. But um, I, I don't know. I think, like. See, there was that perception with croaks before. They used to have a few outside players. I remember Brian Cavanagh used to play for them yeah. when he was long for captain and a few others. But um, last year particularly, I remember we were chatting to Shane Horn on the club championship mm. show and he was making that point. It was homegrown. It was lads who'd come through the club together. So it was very different to that maybe perception that's out there. Yeah. I think the other thing that's kind of slightly dangerous is the perception that went around pretty on social media at the weekend, which was, oh, you know, all of these super clubs are offering these massive incentives for guys to sign for them. Mm. Um, pretty much again, since the year dot, lads have been sorted out with jobs and so on when they've yeah. come in to play for it. Rory Gallagher's unit would be interesting now because he did the rounds like he was you know comfortably able to play in Dublin and obviously um, learned learned how to uh, go from club to club and also like you know he played with good football teams in Dublin so maybe I should uh, see if he has a view on it because I think I, I think it is if you had a poll out there it would divide people some would say it's his choice it's it's logical he's playing and it might help his inter-county career but it's kind of like I'd say Brian Cody would be voted a different way. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I think at 29, most of his development is already done. So yes, he, he is yes. the player that he is now, and he was a remarkable yes. player in the championship this year. But um, yeah, look, the debate will go on. The, the other side to it, too, is that there are so many players that transfer into clubs to play because they want to play a bit of ball or a bit of hurling and they don't want to have to travel back hours to go home mm. and this kind of gets lost in it that because Shane Walsh is a massive name and he's transferring to Kimmelco Crokes let's talk about the transfer system within the GEA so you're right I think I think it is going to split opinion massively because of who he is I know a lad uh, who played for Leitrim and he made the he made the change from to a Dublin club told me told me about this in the pub one night and not for a second did I think what are you doing to your local club it just made complete sense that he couldn't keep travelling to Leitrim to play for his club in Leitrim um, so there is that aspect to it as well it is Shane Walsh so it's slightly different mm. um, back page of the Times the English edition of the Times today a moment has to be seized which is looking to develop women's football in England after the success of their team at the weekend against Germany and you've got Chloe Kelly who's got uh, plenty of Irish blood running through her veins who scored the winner at the weekend uh, against Germany celebrating uh, when England uh, picked up the cup of the weekend also plans for fans to hear VAR is an exclusive from Martin 
Martin Ziegler on the back of the Times, which is an interesting one. This one that's been talked about a lot, John, is that fans get frustrated when they're sitting there, the big screen goes blank, it takes mm. ages for the VAR decision, that if it was like rugby and it was mic'd up and you could potentially hear what's going on or fans at home could hear it on the TV... That makes a massive difference if you know what the actual decision-making process is. Yeah, it's uh, and also it's an aspect of going to games in Coal Park. I think that's intriguing in that, you know, uh, when when VAR got it wrong in the Galway uh, Derry game or the Galway Derry game, rather, you had to be at you had to be getting texts at the ground to be told what was going on and that they were mm-hmm. going to change this. And when you know at Coal Park where they stop showing replays and all that, sometimes you're better off being at home on TV. I'm not a fan of VAR full stop, but I can see where the fans are coming from. Obviously. Yeah, so that's the back of the Times. Also inside, uh, there is a piece by Henry Winter. His editorial today is that United need to move on from the past and let Cristiano Ronaldo leave as opposed to trying to keep him around. Uh, uh, Donald in dark new Ryder Cup captain none the wiser about golf's live rebels uh, that was Luke Donald who was confirmed as the successor to Henrik Stenson uh, now to win the World Cup Kelly takes aim at global domination that is Chloe Kelly again same picture of her dancing after England's success they want to go on and push for the World Cup having been crowned the European champions now you've got uh, the vast majority of the papers here John which you managed to grab before you come in so you're up next yeah briefly there all the tabloids are going Ronaldo I mean this is like just the never ending story of Ronaldo and Man United I, the carousel of you know chat about this I, just, I, I have to say I just find it so uninteresting but obviously the papers don't um, Ronaldo in my view I agree with Henry Renter he should be moved on but this is the sun um, top of the strops obviously and then you see the homecoming queens a royal welcome and a uh, good point as well about the whole Meath homecoming they couldn't do this last year so when you think of the lack of opportunities Meath have had to celebrate anything at inter-county level I'd say they had a right good party and they will in the Royal County for the good Royals double entendre early we won't go into that again <laughs> I've learned a few things since I spoke last the selfish Ron and this is the star again Ronaldo um, and uh, the England team and Shane time to make a move so that did uh, creep into the back page uh, we have the Mirror here as well, selfish Ronnie, um, which is again it's the same headline, um, and then O'Toole, and this is an interesting one from Olivia O'Toole. Scientist the FEI to think extraordinarily big, um, in terms of the FEI has a lot of challenges at the moment as well, because it still doesn't have a sponsor for the men's team. I think the SSC electricity sponsorship is up at the end of the year, um, obviously still in massive debt, um, but a lot of issues as well as the women's game. And here we have the uh, Irish Daily Mail U-turn on knee. Uh, Premier clubs believe Jester has lost impact. Interesting that the, it went with that. Um, and then the night Giovanni Van Vonkers and Rangers was stunned by Shelburne. I, I, I actually don't. I'm not. So I have to just check who read that, who wrote that. But I think that's that was, that was a great time. I remember being in New York um, and I just gotten into the League of Ireland and I badgered my uh, that piece written by. Brian uh, Marjorie Banks and um, I was in New York in 1998 Pats were playing Celtic and um, I, I badgered my uh, American cousins to find me a pub that would show the Pat Celtic game and Pat's got a nil all draw but it was it was over it was coming in at screen uh, Shelburne 1 Rangers nil Shelburne 2 Rangers nil Shelburne 3 Rangers nil and um, Shelburne and Rangers in 1998 uh, was an amazing um, night they lost 5-3 and the game had to be moved to, to Prenton Park this is the last one. Double winner wall, all set for real adventure down under in the Times. Um, and we have the piece about Reese McKellen as well. And I think the, the Vicky Wall uh, comments will be very interesting for Miles to talk about as well. Yeah, definitely. Vicky Wall is heading to Australia on Friday of this week, right? They were the back pages. Yes, there are so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. 
I think he's a total spoofer. What you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, I haven't. Come on, don't, don't be. No, I'm not. Yes. No. Paul Mulaney is with us now for the sports news. Before I ask you about the sports news, what's your take on Shane Walsh's move to Kilmacud? Uh, I can see both sides to the story, I think. Uh, but, you know, if Shane Walsh wants to transfer and he's living and studying in Dublin, I don't think there should be any issue at all. Uh, obviously, the fact that his club obviously want him to stay and he's such a high-profile player that and, and they're quite a small club in Galway playing in the Intermediate Championship. His loss will be immeasurable to them but I think the reality of the situation is if he's living and working in Dublin, studying in Dublin and he wants to transfer, I don't think they should stand in his way. Um, and there are thousands of examples of people transferring mm. to different clubs. Um, I don't think it, just the fact that Shane Walsh is so high-profile has probably garnered more attention but I don't think that anyone should stand in his way and uh, if you, and he does say he wants to go back to Kilcar and Clumburn again as well mm. in the future so I didn't think its statement covered itself in glory to be honest because I, I think it's not really fair to put to say to, from the from the parent club to say we're, do, we're doing all we can to block this this is, a, this is an outrage pretty much like well Shane has given you a lot of service since he was probably whatever like so he's probably playing there the goes to 25 years yeah. at a very very small club so like live and let live with that and have your own views on it but I, I'm, I'm just not sure I'd agree with them putting out a statement almost vilifying Shane for it yeah now the only thing I would say I can appreciate their point of view and maybe when that uh, interviewer statement was released by the club that it was quite raw maybe at that stage and they'd only just heard and as you say they're a small club Johnny you're more they're not used to uh, giving messages to the, to the national media either you know yeah uh, if they're a small club and Shane Walsh is a guy with a national profile and he is such a, an icon in Galway and particularly in his club I'm sure uh, his loss would be huge to them won't it and place up for grabs anyway yeah. <laughs> so there's some like corner forward who's like I actually might get a game here now yeah um, but but um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, it's, it's um, I suppose, an illustration too of the J and the Rora clubs losing players to urban areas, isn't it? In, in different cities and um, probably an issue that down the tracks is going to come up for a lot of areas around the country in rural Ireland that uh, players have been lost to cities. And it's very hard. I know, you know, the vast majority of, uh, I would argue, all uh, club players are very loyal to their home clubs. But there does come a time when reality bites and you consider even now the cost of travelling up and down the country for a club players uh, is huge and obviously no expenses in the in the vast majority of cases for them Yeah, I just wish that there was a standardisation of the way the transfers occurred and the way the players move within counties, so in Dublin like in a lot of counties, probably people are watching the show now, there's a parish rule for the best part I know in my club, in our parish, we've got three clubs and you have to play for the club who are within that area of the parish and someone transfers in, that's going to be the case as well. In some counties, you can transfer to any club within the county itself. And understandably, in Dublin, I think people get moved around the city and you might want to play for someone on the far side of the city or whatever else, but it leaves it open to this idea, called that someone could come in and decide. And understandably, I think you would decide to join the best team in the county. Like, I remember a few outside players going to clubs like Port Leash over the last 20 years uh, when they went to work in Leash for, say, the police force and were working there and living there, they decided to join Port Leash. Understandably, you're going to be drawn towards the bigger clubs. But if the rules were consistent across the counties, you wouldn't have that happen. Yeah, I'm not overly familiar, I have to say, with the uh, the rules in regard to transfers. But I was reading up on it this morning in that uh, clubs can launch an uh, objection if they wish to. And there has to be, obviously, the county board has to accede to the request as well. But... That, said, that would get really nasty though if they were making the claim that for some reason like they were claiming that say Shane Walsh wasn't living permanently within Dublin or wasn't working permanently within Dublin then next thing by putting in that appeal to stop it 
you potentially drive him away from coming back to play for the club again. Next year, he might go to New York instead. It's, it's, it's mad as well when you think about like the backlash that AIB got over uh, the, the cashless and all that, and they backtracked on it. This is the greatest boon ever for AIB in terms of club championship. Can you imagine watching him and Mannion? Like, and the, the hysteria around that. We're talking about viewing figures at games. Like, There would be such a hysteria around their games in the championship to watch the two of them and how, how they react to them. And like the, You probably get a bit of... Uh, bit of uh, banter from opposition fans as well in Dublin because like you know it's, it is what it is but God they'd be good to watch they will uh, <laughs> good, 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 to look, watch. good luck to cornerbacks and, and the irony then of Mannion not committing to you know so the, the, two, the two of them players are very interesting stories to tell why, isn't Ma- why is Mannion giving up on the inter-county game it seems and why is Shane Walsh giving up on his, his, home, count, his home club so fascinating stuff yeah Rory Larmer in contact uh, Shane Walsh wants to win an All-Ireland Championship I presume both club and county but club in this case uh, that should not be seen as a legitimate reason to transfer he has to travel for the county too so there we go argue away about Shane Walsh in the comments over the next while uh, what is in the news aside from that uh, Carl? Well Europe's new golf captain uh, Luke Donald hopes the Ryder Cup brings the sport back together in Rome next year following the divisions caused by the Live Series he's been confirmed in the role after Henrik Stenson was sacked for joining the controversial breakaway tour meanwhile in other golf news Tiger Woods turned down an offer of between 700 and 800 million dollars to join the Saudi back series according to Greg Norman the Australian is CEO of the breakaway tour and he says the 15-time major winner was approached uh, with an offer but the PGA Tour has revealed a new prize money structure with a total of $415 million on offer next season and eight invitational tournaments will also be included in the schedule with elevated purses. Uh, in football news, UCD are off the bottom of the SSE Artricity League Premier Division table that's after they earned a one-all draw away to Drogheda United last night it lifts the students up to ninth. Drogheda remain in eighth. Cross Channel, New Watford boss Rob Edwards got his reign off to a winning start as they beat Sheffield United by a goal to nil in the championship last night. João Pedro scored the only goal of the game in the club's first competitive match since relegation from the Premier League last season. Rangers are in Champions League third round qualification action this evening. They'll take on Union in Belgium in the first leg of their tie and kickoff for that match is at 7.45. While there's some sad news emerging uh, from Scotland with the news that John Yogi Hughes, one of Celtic's Lisbon Lions has passed away at the age of 79. He spent 12 years at the club between 1959 and 1971, making 416 appearances and scoring 189 goals. He did not play in the 1967 European Cup final, but he did feature in enough matches before it to win a medal. He won seven league titles, four Scottish Cups and five League Cups uh, with Celtic. And finally, there's racing at Roscommon this evening, where the first of seven races goes to post at 25 past five. Just want to give a mention to UCD as well. Um, I think it was Dermot Morgan said he was a UCD fan because uh, he did agoraphobia and so he scored games <laughs> in Belfield which reminds me that there was a, an agoraphobia gag in Father Ted about Father Jack being afraid of uh, getting into a fight um, but UCD have lost Colm Whelan to a horrible injury this season he was their marquee player he was going to get all their goals linked with loads of moves away uh, they lost Kerrigan obviously to Como who's now been what about Kerrigan and Fabregas, Fabregas together yeah. which is mad <laughs> Eric Yoro I think went to Bolton so added to the fact that they were a first division team last season that was comfortably inferior to the champions and probably even go United to finish second. So they were given no chance, no chance whatsoever. Saying, oh, I found Johnny Ward. Take away, take away their three best players or their three sort of most promising players, either through injury or having left. And then all of a sudden they've overtaken Finn Harps. And to my mind, the progressive profile of Andy Myler's team now, they might make the playoffs and stay up. And I know they've little support and I know people say, oh, UCD shouldn't be in the top league. Um, they've just quietly gone about their business. Young 
Thomas Lonergan has now scored four in five games an 18 year old striker I have to say I'd never heard of up until a month ago um, Andy Myler one of the nicest guys in the game managing them and they've quietly gone about their business and fair play to them like I'd say that dressing room has a bit of a GA element to it like nobody gives us a chance when we're proving them wrong and fair play to them Yeah, I used to enjoy going when I was in college um, mm. generally drink offers were put on when they were allowed back at the time that I was studying in UCD and also we lived on campus right beside the pitch at the time they moved obviously the other side of campus now at this stage so it's a little bit further away but Mm. Generally, if I stand up for the weekend on a Friday, we used to go and watch a bit of football and yeah. watch generally nine tenths of the crowd be from. Yeah, I, I I always did have a fault with UCD in that I think they never did nearly enough promotion around the games, and it's like even if they had like a beer 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 promotions or food promotions or get people in, there's a massive college, um, you know potential there of getting people along I always thought but at the same time it's hard to get volunteers to do that and their support is so little that maybe they just can't get the volunteers but like I think uh, this year has been a bit better the crowds haven't been bad and they're not a bad side to watch and a part of me is hoping that they they do it because of I've just so much respect for what they've achieved despite the loss of these players people give them no chance Yeah they develop players incredibly well in college as well the the big thing was games are on Friday night most people clear off campus Mm. by the time their 11 o'clock lecture is finished on a Friday so very few people around the fact yeah. that we were living there was the reason that we went to so many games yeah. but there you go Colin Lanny thanks a million for joining us OTBM brought to you live each morning with thanks to Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day now our own Alana Canan joins us freshly back from Wembley Alana where you were watching England create a bit of history beating Germany in the Euro 2022 final it, it was quite a contrast in so many ways to the final against Italy last year in that England got it done in extra time didn't have to go to penalties and go through that pain but also, and you can speak to us about the experience of being there, very, very different to crowds rushing the gates the year before, the kind of messy atmosphere outside the game before Italy. Everyone seems to have had a really good time on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I've heard uh, no uh, negative complaints anyway as well. A very positive experience overall, I think. And um, one that a lot of people will remember for that as well as the football, I think. Because as you say, in contrast to... Uh, Last year's or the men's Euro final, it was worlds apart. There was a real kind of family vibe to it. There was no hassle getting in or out. Um, and a lot of people actually arrived very, very early. I know we arrived probably about four hours early. We um, were trying to get a bit to eat before we went in. But uh, we thought there'd be no one there. But Wembley Way was absolutely packed even at that stage. So, um, yeah, everyone just trying to soak it all in, I guess. Yeah. Um, with the game itself we got to mention the crowds that went in. You were part of it, 87,000 strong. It's the third highest attendance for a women's fixture this year. Barcelona hold a record with the Wolfsburg and Real Madrid games in the Champions League. But it's also the highest for a UEFA-sanctioned competition final in the European Championships. Um, It seemed very difficult for people to get tickets, and that's probably a sign of this tournament, which had pretty good crowds throughout as well. Yeah, there was such an appetite, I think, well, for all the tickets, um, but especially this one, the big one, I guess. And yeah, like you're saying, it kind of goes with the trend there of where there's been a lot of highly attended women's football matches this year. As you say, the Barcelona Wolfsburg, that was 91,000 plus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, the same. And a bit of that as well is kind of what we touched on just there. There's no need for the degradation of fans because it is such a relaxed atmosphere so they can get those extra people in just to enjoy the football and be civil, I suppose, as, uh, as opposed to getting involved with that kind of stuff no one wants to see. 
were there a fair few neutrals there if we consider you were there as a neutral effectively like you would expect that England fans would get their hands on most of the tickets there were a fair spattering of German fans I even saw a Kerry jersey in the middle of the Germany oh, fans who were celebrating jersey, the goal yeah, yeah. Yeah, no matter what crucible, happens Johnny like, is it the Masters the Crucible Bahrain GP there will be a Kerry, Kerry jersey somewhere and there was one right in the middle of the Germany celebrations and I think that Kerry fan was not holding back and celebrating the Germany goal either but um, were there many neutrals in Alana considering that you know England would in all likelihood would have got their hands on most of the tickets yeah I'd say um, that's definitely fair to say England where you're definitely the majority then followed by Germany but there was a good um, span of neutrals there uh, I was kind of taking full use of the non-working fan opportunity I was sporting the Irish women's national team jersey myself um, but uh, I wasn't the only one doing that either I know I was getting plenty of texts there seemed to be an Irish jersey celebrating amongst the Germans when uh, they got their goal through my goal so um, a lot of is this you but uh, gotta, ca- gotta call you out there now who are you up for who are you up for yeah yeah I think uh, I was in the a win for them is a win for us kind of mindset <laughs> I think um, <laughs> I don't think you can uh, begrudge them that especially seeing you know the amount of investment um, into their leagues and their structures and just the backing they gave the England women's national team I think it's a structure that could be replicated and um, this side of the water so uh, I'll go in that camp for that for that mindset of it I think Johnny well, just Alana, just on that because like my, my local club Shivan Rovers has had like a very very strong um, women's underage team for a long time it's kind of been normal for me but in, in the League of Ireland sense this is this is only quite new where you have the likes of you know, Sligo Rovers, for example, having a team recently, your own local club. This is something that, um, I don't know, what's your take on it? It's been transformative in some respects, but it obviously you need coaches, you need um, facilities, you need time, you need resources, you need enough pitches to support all these underage teams. And we, I don't know, have we, we've so much potential in this country to get this right as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, Johnny, you know yourself, there's a lot of good people working in the League of Ireland, but it's by translating that good sentiment, I guess, into proper infrastructural change and development. Because while we do have such good stories, even you could see last year in the Women's National League, how that ended, absolute fireworks. And now you have people in uh, playing for Shell, such as Heather O'Rahley, mm. Heather O'Rahley, who has like 231 appearances for USA and 47 goals so yeah as you say there's such great stories they just need to get those resources I think to push them on even more and I think you could see that even in the Euros this year like the teams that went the distance are the ones that invest in their own league their own leagues I know um, League of Ireland friend of mine Shauna Cook uh, was talking about on Twitter about how 19, uh, 19 out of the 23 of England squad play in England 21 of the 23 of Germany squad play in Germany and like that's not by any means of luck. It's about investing not only in their um, national team, but in the leagues. And interestingly enough, the ones probably who came closest to beating Spain, or to beating England, was Spain. They had 21 out of 23. So that tells you all you need to know about the trajectory and the relationship of the home leagues to the national teams. And when you look at as well, WSL started around 10 years ago, but um, that's probably what had that England team so recognisable to a lot of the neutral fans I guess because you're so used to seeing like your Beth Meads Leah Williamson's Millie Bright Fran Kirby you know Erps like there were so many of them that you recognise from your WSL teams that it, that 
uh, kind of translated down to the national team. Yeah, look, if England are going to kick on and turn this Euros into a World Cup, they need the Women's Senior Super League, I should say, to be as strong as it possibly can be. And at the moment, it's arguably the best league in Europe, not just because so many of these England players are playing there, but they've brought in some of the best of the world uh, from outside to play there too. I was just thinking, before we talk about the game itself, you mentioned Heather Riley going to Shelburne. That's a bit of a mad one, isn't it? <laughs> Three years in retirement, um, decides she's going to come back and give the Champions League one more go. Yeah, well, um, she's basically um, had the list ticked off of everything else in her career. So the Champions League was the last thing she wanted to have a proper go at. Now, as you say, it's a bit like um, Sligo Rovers in Europe. Maybe she had a bit of a rude awakening there because um, Shelburne actually played Sligo at the weekend and Sligo won that one. So I'd say it wasn't the start she was hoping for, but no doubt she'll have an unbelievable impact. And as well, given that Shells are... Being the best team at the moment, they're kind of scoured for their best players overseas. So that kind of leaves them with some holes. She'll definitely be looking to fill that opportunity and, yeah, kick on for them from here. Yeah, what a player for their young players to learn from, especially with some of their uh, best players going across the water in the transfer window, as you mentioned. But the game itself then, and just before it is where we have to pick the story up in many ways, because we were talking to see Ronan on Friday's show, and we did a whole section on how Alex Pop was going to be very difficult for England to defend against, and she'd been playing really well throughout the tournament, and we spoke about the fact that she had had frustration with injuries at previous tournaments, and then gets a knock in the warm-up. What a blow for Germany. Yeah, as you say, it would have been a different game had she been in there. Now, I actually didn't um, realise until they were calling out the um, team sheets that she wasn't in the lineup. I know um, some people had mentioned that they could see in the warm-up. I was well up in the sky, so <laughs> I didn't have that viewpoint. But yeah, such a blow to them. Six goals in the tournament and uh, in the lead-up to that game, in the run-in there for the Golden Boot alongside Beth Mead. And she's just been such a transformative figure I think for um, for Germany you could hear uh, Emma Byrne was talking about it on Koiga yesterday she really kind of just gave them that edge that they were lacking maybe the last few years and at 31 years old her first major tournament she missed the last two to her injury she really made up for it this time around though but uh, I'd say she was gutted to miss, miss out in the final she gave them that real X factor throughout the tournament it's just a shame we didn't really get to see that final face off Mm. the England goals to start with the Ella Toon goal what a finish yeah the audacity to come out with the chip as well well I don't know I don't know how she did it but yeah ball slipped into her and just chips it over and as you say the, the crowd went wild I'd say Germany would have felt a bit aggrieved um, as you say just before that I guess they had that penalty call which I actually didn't even realise um, came about at all I'm very surprised Barr didn't uh, pick it up or come back to it Um now, I was kind of surrounded by England fans. So as I say, I didn't actually realise there was a grievance over it um, whatsoever. But yeah, there was a lot of kind of question marks around the ref throughout the game. But it is a pity, I guess, that VAR didn't pick up on that and serve its purpose that it's set out to do, I guess. Yeah, and look, Germany, I think I feel very much aggrieved having watched the replays of it on the BBC when we were watching the game. And it would have naturally have changed the game as well because I got the feeling during all of it and even through extra time as well Alana that it was going to be very hard for either team to break the other down like they both have fantastic defensive records going into the final England lift the trophy with just two goals conceded Germany can see well, I think three during the whole tournament as well um, so this was always likely to be a little bit of an arm wrestle and a low scoring game and what an impact it could have had if Germany get themselves a pen and took that away yeah, and I'd say it changes the whole course of the game. You know, if Germany go 1-0 up there instead of Toon getting the, the first goal, you never know what could have happened because the crowd really got behind 
um, England then. And I don't know, I'd say it was kind of pressurising actually because, you know, the way they uh, were singing the it's coming home thing. And instead of sinking to that, I think they kind of rose to the challenge. I know um, Kira Walsh is getting a lot of plaudits now. She was player of the match. She was brilliant in it once again. But um, she's the type of player that drove them on for that victory, I think, in the end. Um, like throughout the tournament, England scored the most goals in a single year was 22. Now, 18 of those came from open play and the likes of her had a lot to do to, to do with that in that pivot role and that was only exemplified again um, at the weekend. So, yeah, I think had had Germany scored first, it's hard to tell where we would have been, but um, I think, yeah, uh, like, I mean, they got the job done in the end. Do you know what, Johnny? When you hear Kira Walsh, Chloe Kelly, I know. I was, I was thinking <laughs> that it's, it's, Chloe Kelly. Um, just the, the image of Chloe Kelly. Um, how how like seismic is that image of her? Like taking off her shirt for women's football. What that actually means? I know Gary Lineker got into a bit of hot water over his tweet, but I think there's something defining about that image, and that um, this is this is a sport that has probably had to come through a lot of prejudices. Um, in the moments, probably its greatest moment of triumph in terms of uh, support, interest, quality of football. This is where we're at. I just find it defining. Yeah, I think so, Johnny. I mean, um, there's been instances before, you know, Brandy Chastain in 1999 mm. uh, did the same thing in the uh, World Cup final. And it had a lot of people talking about it in a negative sense that, you know, she shouldn't be doing that. Or, or maybe it was sexualized or condemned beyond what it would be in the men's game because obviously it happens in both but it's just more of a regular occurrence in that side of things but I think it shows you how far um, the world world landscape as views on women have changed but also the football landscape because there wasn't that at all like everyone just took it for what it was it's just sheer crystal clear joy I think is, is all you could kind of take off it rather than anything uh, bigger than that I, I just I, I find if you I mean as a kid what, what would this have meant to you like 10-15 years ago to see this tournament and to see the hysteria around it because there are loads of footballers that are created in England from what happened over the weekend yeah yeah I think so um, definitely like you can only look at any of the major tournaments growing up um, I mean I kind of watched all those uh, World Cup and Euros along the way but they're the ones that uh, drive you on to want to go and be these players. I'm sure there's lots of little kids running around their back gardens now wanting to be their Beth, Me- Beth Meads or Chloe Kelly's or Alan White, whoever it is. Um, there's like multiple players now across all the nations, really, about uh, who they can aspire to be. And as I say, that's only going to progress things on from here. What can the League of Ireland do to make it more professional than it is in terms of looking after players and that it's not straightforward um, it's not like the men's game is straightforward here but what can we do? Yeah I think there just needs to if we can look at the English model and kind of have a look at that and see what we can take from it obviously um, they're going to have a, a huge monetary influx now and uh, you would expect some of that will go towards their WSL I think as we touched on earlier that's the way forward you know you need to invest in your Women's National League so we can push on the Women's National team um, because while we have that talent here at the minute and we're getting to see it week on week, you know, I just mentioned Heather O'Reilly there, but she's obviously from the States. We have a lot of homegrown talent as well, you know, um, throughout all of our Women's National League teams. So um, if we could kind of hold on to them for as long as we can, push the league forward and uh, yeah the step up for them at the minute is to go to the women's WSL or elsewhere overseas and so that just tells you that they want that step up and 
to progress to that level of professionalism, as you say, uh, if we could get a bit of a hold of that here, that'd be great. Re- really briefly, I hope some politicians were watching this and like I made this point again about academies in Ireland. The academies are not for the boys only, they're for both. Like, And the academies do need support from government level. And I think there is nothing bad that can happen from this. Putting money into your underage structures and clubs dotted around parts of rural Ireland, various parts of Ireland, and um, creating jobs, keeping people at home and making the stars of tomorrow wear Ireland jerseys rather than England jerseys. But we have to start from the base level and we have a long, long way to go. Yeah, 100%. I'd agree with that, John. Alana, thanks a million for joining us. Thanks, guys. Uh, the, the real class Chloe Kelly moment of the weekend. So you see the picture that was caught at just the right moment. So she was twirling the jersey, obviously she was running past. And at one point, it actually came back perfectly where her name and number was actually right in front of the camera as it happened. That's amazing. The only issue I have with it is the Nike promotion, which I would kind of have slight misgivings about. But if we are talking about images before Anthony Miles, yeah. like... This image of the two Kerry players, like the the look of absolute horror Terror, as yeah. they just try in vain to keep up with Vicky. Like it's just, I just think she has, in terms of her brand for Gaelic football in this country, it's been amazing, and that is a massive loss as well. And I, that's why I'm intrigued as to what Anthony has to say about that. But I have a lot of sympathy for the two Kerry uh, players there because it's, yeah, it's not an easy job. She's been marked very tightly this year because mm. understandably senior teams know all about her now. Yeah. but she's st- still such a game changer and she. She breaks lines so easily and uh, that me team they're set up about being defensively strong John but the thing is when they move they've got fantastic forwards mm. and so many good players Emma Duggan is absolutely an incredible young player as well uh, we'll talk to Mulsey about how good me they've been in a few moments OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless start to your day here's what we've got coming up on OTB Sports Radio later at 1pm it's some OTB Gold with Nigel Mansell we'll be looking back in the Euros final uh, with the Koi Gig crew at 3pm uh, we've also got a career retrospective Stephen Elliott the former Republic of Ireland striker at 4pm our OTB goal switches from Republic of Ireland striker to Republic of Ireland defender in Paul McGrath. And then, of course, OTB will be live with Joe Malloy in this very seat at 7pm this evening. You can follow Off the Ball across all of our social channels, subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best sports content and analysis. Now, during the upcoming ad break, you're going to hear Kathleen McNamee, Karen Duggan and Republic of Ireland legend Emma Byrne on the latest episode of the Koi Gig podcast. They've been reflecting on the job that Serena Wiegmann has done following England's historic victory against Germany in the Euro 2022 final at Wembley on Sunday. The Koi Gig pod on OTB Sports is in association with Cabri FC. They are the official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. We'll be back with Mead's Anthony Moyles after the break. OTB AM. Welcome back to OTB AM. It is coming up now on 16 minutes after nine. Delighted to say that Anthony Moyles is with us. We're going to talk about Mead's success and keeping the Brendan Martin with the Royals for a second successive year and what the future might mean mean for them as well with yeah, potentially a breakup of the backroom team and some of the players are going to be going to Australia but just to start with Shane Walsh because this has been a kind of a constant theme and the comments have been kind of rocking all morning about this and you've, yep. got, you've got experience about transferring between clubs <laughs> and transferring into Dublin what do you make about first of all Walsh's decision to go to Kilmacud um, yeah like I don't <laughs> Listen, I, you know, speaking from personal experience, I, 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 there's plenty of lads that would give me plenty of slagging about one club, one life, and all the rest of it. Kind of say, well, it's more like seven or eight clubs for me. But you know, I think different situations occur, I suppose, um, during a player's career. Um, it could be, you know, personal reasons, as in he's living or working somewhere else. It could be an ambition thing. Um, you know, it could be a personality thing as regards a, you know, a kind of something that happened within the club. Um, so there's. 
there's lots and lots of different factors going on. Uh, like, I mean, I think definitely the travel and all of that. When you're doing it for the county, um, and I would have seen this, you know, even uh, there's, it, there's been plenty of instances of it. Um, there is then a kind of a thing of you're doing it for the county. Yes, there's 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 more kind of, I suppose, set standards around where you're going to train and stuff like this so you might be training in Dublin as well okay mm. now as you come closer to the championship of course you're going to have to be down in Galway or wherever it is but um, for the club situation there may be a feeling where on his part and listen this is a speculation that it's kind of like it's nearly a break and he's kind of saying you know what do I nearly have to be going down all year round type thing um, I am living and working in Dublin now it's so much easier for me I can give a better level of commitment to it because even though you say oh well he doesn't have to go down for club training if he's not there you know the rest of the players are saying well where is he okay he's a standout player but you still need to be there you know and you still probably want to be there um, and it just can get draining he's what is he 29, 30 years of age now, so he's probably playing for the club since he was, you know, come out of a minor. So it's it it just it can get you, um, you know. And I suppose it's it's a situation where he may also be. I'd say he's the ambitious type, you know, and he's probably looking at it and saying, you know what, uh, Kim McCud, like anyone who comes out of Dublin is generally in the mix for an All Ireland uh, title. So he's probably saying, you know, could I win an All Ireland club? Um, His feeling might be he's the missing piece. You take a bit of pressure. Paul Malley was injured for the tail end of last year, which really affected them, but even. And I remember watching some of their Leinster Championship games and Port Arlington put a real lock onto Mannion. It worked out for him in the second half of that Leinster semi-final, but generally he was tightly marked. You put Walsh there. Good luck trying to double stop both of them. Yeah, and Kilmacud are an interesting club because I moved from Mead into Dublin and I, I transferred to St. Oliver Plunkett's who had a very, very you know good, strong team at the time. We got to a county final um, and we lost it to St. Bridges. But, you know, Kilmacud, like the standard was very, very high. You know, and I remember remarking to, to lads, obviously even still in the Mead panel that the standards that were involved and some of the stuff that was going on within the club scene in Dublin was as good if not better than what was happening with ourselves at the time you know so they had started to raise the bar within club level from early on in Dublin so you had Kilmacuds the Ballybones Ballymons uh, Vincent's obviously Oliver Plunkett's were very very strong Lucan were coming so you had all of those teams but Kilmacud generally bar one or two they generally recruited from within mm. the kind of parish if you know what I mean they weren't really a club that kind of really you know threw out the net to see who they could get not like and, say the name maybe Parnells would have got for the amount of external players yeah well that was a different I suppose you know there was plenty of money knocking around at that stage because of what they did with their, 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 the, the club itself and, and the grounds and all that kind of stuff and it was a, probably just a grab all but certainly you know this kind of idea that you know these Dublin teams are out there and they're kind of you know you know nearly on LinkedIn trying to get lads in it's not It's. I don't think that's necessarily the truth I, I think when you have a fella who's working and living in Dublin I'm not exactly sure what he does right but say you're getting off at 5 or 6 o'clock your employer is obviously also going you know what pal you're working here for me you, you head down to Galway three or four times and I have no problem with that you're a senior inter-county player but when you start asking me for time off to go play for a junior or intermediate or a senior club down and go and you're leaving here at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, that starts to get a little bit kind of burdensome for some employers. And some employers don't really give a fiddlers about GAA, you know. So there's loads of little... for a PE teacher, I think. That's what he's which? He's going to become a PE teacher. Okay, well then... Say, yeah, well, probably, that's I'd say most likely though he's a job as well because he did mention the statement that he was working and living within Dublin. So yeah, I'm yeah. guessing it's not just... Yeah, but look, you know what? A lot of it... I, I think a lot of it when it boils down to it and certainly I know from my situation I, I, I was playing with a... Uh, 
the local junior team we won the junior championship in Mead went up into Mead and unfortunately we kind of went back down into it and that was a band of brothers it was just one team we were kind of like a splinter team from Dunboyne St. Peter's and St. Paul's underage and then Dunboyne or St. Peter's and we were St. Paul's but you know myself and my brother my brother Barry was on the Mead junior team at the time I was trying to break into the seniors and I suppose the, the, the conversation was had with all the clubs and all the players and all of our teammates of well look lads these are the standards we want to get to where are you going to be? And the boys were saying, well, listen, we can't train X amount of nights. We're doing this. We're starting families. So there was a there was a kind of a, we went with the blessing of the club and transferred. And we transferred for ambition. We wanted to win championships, which we did. Um, so, look, Will, there's lots and lots of different factors, you know, and I think you can't just kind of throw stuff at it and say he's trying to do this. Like, I can guarantee you this much. It's, it's definitely not a, a kind of resource or money situation. That's that's a guarantee because I know lots of these clubs have, like Kilmacud are a big club but Kilmacudder they run that club like a machine and the mm. amount of money that's required within mm. that club just to keep the club going and to be able to facilitate all the members and all the juveniles and everything else so I can guarantee there's nothing like that going on so is it ambition is it is it you know the travel I don't know but you know what um, it's a horrible situation and I think it's did really you meet nasty. any resistance when you were trying to pull off one of your transfers yeah, well, when I went from, um, I was with Blackhall Gales when we won a championship. I was with them for a number of years. The team kind of started to break up. The manager, uh, Leo Turley, had, 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 had finished up. We had got to a final. We lost the final to Dunboyne. And I suppose it was kind of coming to an end, uh, just an end of a journey, really. Um, and Dunboyne would have been my parish and where I kind of originally played, uh, 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 you know, my underage stuff about hurling and football. And I went to go back to Dunboyne because actually, funnily, I tri- myself and my brother Barry, we tried to transfer to Dunboyne after St. Paul's. But I mean, this is a long story. Um, we come as a package, so. Yeah, we come as a package. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we were stopped. So we weren't allowed to go. And, and you know what? That is That is not a nice situation because... The reason that was given to me was, well, look, you know, how would we feel if we played Dunboy in the championship next year and you're lined out against us midfield? And I would say, yeah, that's that's a very valid argument. But I was also saying, but like, you know, if I don't line out for Dunboy, I'm not going to line out for you. So I'm going somewhere else because at, at the age I was, I think I was getting close to 30. I couldn't take just a year out, you know. So I transferred into Dublin because that was the only move I could make. I couldn't transfer to another me team. So it was either play for Blackhall Gales, don't play at all, mm-hmm. or move somewhere else. So this is the situation that Shane Walsh finds himself in. And it's not a great situation because he has lots of friends. He's lots of family. He has lots of teammates who are obviously still involved in the club, which I had with Blackhall. Great he's people. keen to go back and play for them again. He said that already. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you don't want to burn bridges, you know, and I think if anyone puts their hand up, they, they're not just doing this on a whim, they've thought about it long and hard, and, you know, I think the committee need to sit down and kind of really think, actually, you know what, yes, we may be losing them, and I see some of the, the, the quotes saying, you know, think of the children, you know, kind of idea. <laughs> like, you know, at the end of the day, the club is not just one man, you know, and even though it's Shane Walsh or whoever it is, the club is the club, and the club will have to be there and will have to flourish when Shane Walsh is well gone. Um, like, I mean, he, he, he could be finished in a couple of years I don't know Um, but he's at the peak of his powers now he has an ability to go and possibly win as I say an All-Ireland Club Championship and you know, I think I think to try and stop him now is going to cause a really, really nasty uh, vibe, and I can imagine locally it's causing a, probably a lot of angst. You know, yeah. Meath going back to back, Moisey as well, uh, fantastic achievement. The last five years have been remarkable. Going to all Ireland's of different hues over the last five seasons, yeah. uh, coming out of the intermediate, now going back to back at senior level, backing up the success of last year, and showing it wasn't uh, a one-off either. 
and a very impressive performance in the final both defensively with the way they lock Kerry down particularly in the second half bit of adversity going 1-2 down early on and having to come back and then having the afterburners to just finish the game out in the end as well I'm sure you have to be very happy with the way they performed you know it's like I was I went I went into the match that's you know I brought my two girls in um and they're only young so so you know the first kind of 20 minutes was me feeling 400 million questions about the crows the swans the, the not the swans the seagulls, the, seagulls yeah. the president the grass what colour are meat? <laughs> the usual stuff when am I getting my hot dog which they didn't get again by the way but uh no, it was, a, it was. You know what? I actually got quite emotional at the end of the game watching it because there was an enormous crowd there for me. Absolutely fantastic support. Um, it just shows you how hungry the county is for success. And I know I said this last year, but you know, it's it's. And they're an amazing team, I think, because not only have they captured the hearts of uh, and minds of Meath people, but I think they've captured an awful lot of support around the country, which is, you know, I was kind of scratching my head over the last few days. I was thinking, is it the underdog kind of thing that they came from, you know, obviously down the lower divisions and came up um, where they have come from four or five years ago? Um, but I honestly think that it's just it's 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 the way they play, you know, and it's the, and and it's obviously the way that the, the ethos that they have within the team. Like I mean, they're so honest. Um, there is no um, showmanship. There's no jumping on the ground. There's no kind of you know gamesmanship. They're just honest. They take it all. Like I mean, they had some really tricky decisions go against them. I thought in the first ten or fifteen minutes. I don't know the intricacies of the tackle in, in ladies football. I don't think anyone knows to be honest. But I was kind of scratching my head at some of the freeze that were going against them and you could see they were getting frustrated. I think some of the players get frustrated about too. A few years ago Camogie changed around a bit and allowed a little bit more physicality. Even as a viewer and like talking to a few other former ladies football players they say it's been a frustration for years. The comment you, of it, I think Vicky's comment after the game is this is the biggest talking point for me and she's on about the move. It's a bit more simple in terms of what you can and can't do over there. I think there's a lot of ambiguity around what a tackle is in ladies football at the moment. And this idea of non-contact, which I think is absolute nonsense. Well, you, yeah. you were there. The decision when she got carded was booed in the stadium. Yeah, it was booed. But even... even so Mead started off nervous, but I definitely think they're obviously... Like, I heard Mick Bohan, the Dublin manager, kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, he was saying, oh, Mead have brought a, an extra level of physicality to it and maybe teams... So I don't, like... Mead have a kind of a very much... Uh, uh, um, Obviously, a counter-attacking style, okay? But once you go near that pocket and once you go into the scoring zone, they swarm you and they try to get the ball off you. And they did that extremely well against Kerry. They frustrated Kerry completely. But but out around the middle, they obviously have fast break and runners. And I, I don't know, so, some of the frees were kind of, you're going, is that a tackle? It was just a hand in, you know? Was that a, just a leg? I, I, you know, you and, and I can only imagine, as frustrating as it was for us watching it, you could see in the pitch the kind of players were kind of going, well, you know, and I don't, I, I'm not even sure the poor old referee yeah. even has clear guidelines if you, on what if you, exactly If you read any more of the referees, like, I, I, we had Vicky Wall on not that long ago on OTBM. It was the first time I chatted with her. She's a very, very good uh, media performer. And Eamon Murray is kind of almost more like, I'm going to say exactly what I think. And he says after the game, I wouldn't want that. You'd only put the players off. Parents wouldn't allow their kids to play the game. And I, I find this a really intriguing debate. So I, I don't really agree with him here. I think... Yeah. We're talking about the nuances here of um, you know, the sexes basically where we can't allow, you know, women's football to be as aggressive as the men, but it's better for that aggression as well. Vicky is the player she is because of the way she plays. So where is this debate gonna go? Well I think 
you know, I'm not going to get into an equality debate here, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely not going to go into those murky waters. But the simple thing, you watch the Euro finals at the weekend, right, the ladies, and, and you watch the, the, the GAA. My wife plays basketball. I remember the first basketball game I went to. I couldn't believe the physicality of it. I was going, Jesus, you wouldn't see this in a, in a men's senior match. Like, there was, there was like plenty of it. And basketball is essentially meant to be sports, a non-contact yeah. sport. But there's loads going on, uh, and, and I'm quite right. Now, maybe Maybe it's, it's not at the standard where it is in the States. She's originally from the States. But like even she would say back there, there's still loads of contacts. You know, you have to use your body. So in GAA, it's very, very difficult, Johnny. If I'm running at you and I change my angle, which Vicky Wall does very, you know, quite really, really well, and she bounces off her left foot and comes into you. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Do you, do you put your hands down and you just let her brush by you? Of course your hand's going to come out or whatever it is. You're going to try and get your body in front of her. Um, and obviously teams have kind of, not targeted her, but teams have realised that what she does is she comes around on the loop and comes onto the ball fast. So teams have said, well, we can't stop her when she gets the ball, so let's stop her at source. And, and as, as, as the stakes go higher in sport, as the S&C goes higher in the ladies' football, because, by the way, the conditioning of both teams, but yeah. especially Mead, was unbelievable. What's like, the I watched, point of this if you, if you don't have contact? Correct. You know. you know, and I think the girls would say, no, no one wants, like, you know, you're not asking for anything bananas, but, uh, you know, it, it, girls are going to get conditioned. Because, by the way, when you go to the AFLW, I watched some of the highlights, uh, you know, last week. I was kind of saying, listen, I want to get into this. And really, what is the grow for for some of these girls to go because I've I've Anyway, it's a very physical game. You know, it's a but very are we over twenty game. now over there from Ireland, like twenty three or something like that. Yeah, and you know what, Johnny, I'm scratching my head like <laughs> Mead or sorry, women's football in Ireland has never been as good as it is now. Mm. Now, I don't know why that has occurred right, relative to the Dublin teams and the Cork teams of the dominance of the last well, It's probably no harm the fact that first time since 2003, neither have been in the final. It, it opens the Yes, it does. And well. probably I saw some, I can't remember which girl said, you know, there was probably, it could have been Cora or someone else said, there's five or six teams who could potentially win it next mm. year. So like the men's thing, the, the playing field, because the standards have improved. And you can obviously see that there's work going in at S&C levels. You talk about Colm O'Rourke. He's probably going to take two or three of that backroom team. So in other words, the backroom team, aren't just made up of a bunch of hams they're made up of quality people right so you end up with a situation where the standards are improving the, the, obviously the standards around the teams are improving you would hope the resources around those are improving as regards expenses and we can go there again but all of those different things because they deserve everything that as, as it should be on uh, same level playing field but the conditioning, all of those different things. So as girls are improving, as the conditioning level is improving, as the game is turning into a much better spectacle with a lot more skill, a lot more ability and all that, well, then the physicality thing is a natural thing that will come in because there is no way to play 15 on 15 in such a fast-moving sport now without physicality to come into it. So the, the frustration there between players, between referee and between supporters, that probably has to be decided upon, I would imagine, by rule makers within the LGFA and say, right, we actually have to define what a tackle is here. Um, because there was a lot of head scratching. Because to be fair to the referee, I thought she was blowing everything and then she just kind of said, she must have got a word in the air and then it was kind of like, actually, we're just going to let everything go yeah. now, you know, because, and then it actually did become, because the amount of whistle blown in the first 10, 15 minutes. But the, 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 the Australia, and I, I just, I, I know we're, we were chatting about Vicky and like, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, again, I am a little perturbed about the fact that at this time, 
someone or, or a body is allowing the best talent to leave you know that's uh, killer to me I mean like losing Orla Lally and Vicky was a huge blow even if they were talking on the Sunday game about they're going to come back and be part of the drive for three in a row but they're away now for a prolonged period of time yeah. because the AFLW season is longer as well yes it is and also I watch as I said I watched some of the game. I don't think the standard is as good it's not it's a totally different game right so so Vicky is quite a combative player okay and the way she moves but she's going to get someone now who's marking her who can tackle her around the show and bring her down to the ground mm-hmm. that's a completely different thing than what she faces every week like I would she's a she's an unbelievable player she's a very strong player um, I'm sure she will be a standout and a star over there but you know I would I would fear as well because to a certain degree the players are protected in the game here you know the referees will not allow certain things to go on which is good in the Aussie rules I watched it's, it seems to be it's all fair and love and war you know there's girls being pounded on the ground there's tackles after the ball I don't know if the standard of refereeing or even the officiating is where it should be it's a different sport so you're coming in from a sport where you've grown and, and played it since five or six or seven years of age you're used to the the, the shall we say the the the, the terms of, of contact and now you're coming into something else that's completely different and she's going to be Marked, she's going to be. Here comes this Irish girl coming over with a big name who thinks she can be, you know, kind of coming onto the ball fast, being combative. Well, we'll we'll match her. So I would, I hope it works out for them. I'm I'm kind of again. It's it's. So I've asked some people why would you do it. Some people said, well, you know, they get paid in a semi-professionalism. And I'm saying, well, it's hardly for the money. It's not enormous money, you know. Surely they could look get looked after here for something relative the same. Not being paid, say being paid, but if they needed a job or whatever it was, surely the resources could be put in here. So then someone else said to me, well, you know, you're training and playing like a professional. Okay, I can take that argument. You know, you be you be within the the confines of the professional or semi-professional kind of era. You'll it's have like all Melbourne of that around you. Are a nice place to live. Yeah, they are. But you know, at the same time, she's one to all Ireland. She's one to all Ireland, mm. right? Like Mead is absolutely buzzing at the moment mm. with those girls. Like, like it, it, you can't get much higher. Bar you go again. And what I mean is, is that the sport is now on a massive trajectory, and someone has allowed two or three or four. There's been lots of girls mm. to be ripped out of that sport. So you basically have gone, well, we're going to cherry pick the best and we're just going to rip them out. So the standard has to drop. And at the same time, when people aspire and young girls or, you know, boys see whatever it is and they look up and they say, well, these are, these are the stars. Those stars are not there anymore. And I just don't know if the, what they're going to is, is even as a package is as good as what they're leaving. Yeah. You know, I can see the men going to Australian rules. Absolutely right, because, you know, there, there's there's an awful lot of resources put in around that. Like, I, I, the grand final had, I can't remember who played in it, but the grand final, had, I think, had an attendance of 21,000. Like, there's 27 million people in Australia, right? And they had 21,000 at the at the women's grand final. There was 46 or 47,000 in Crow Park last week. There was a, I'd say there was twenty five, thirty thousand meet people there. Our national, our national broadcaster, and it's like it has a bland story. Vicky Wall looking forward to next chapter in Australia. That's the headline, top story in the entire sports section in terms of being read. 
that's where we're at with this sport. Like, yeah, it's mad. It's mad. Yeah. And what could you do, Johnny, with it? You know, and, and, and the fear is, is that you're talking about, you know, the, the women's, which is be, be seen, be the, all of that. Well, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, start it here. So someone should be taking a hold of, in the LGFA or the, and saying, listen, hold on a second. We have a brain drain. We have a talent drain yeah. here going yeah. on. And we have to stop this. Why is this being allowed to happen? Could we not put, could Vicky Wall not train in a semi-professional status here in Ireland? Could the best players not be, say, well, listen, you know, you're going to work or you're going to college or whatever it is but we're going to put the, the resources around you to, to really enhance the game and to enhance you as a player because it's, it's never been as, as popular Right, it has never been, and it's inspiring, girls. It might be scratching the surface in terms of across the country how big this could be. So I think several counties are miles behind where they could be. Like, but actually, Johnny, do you know what? <laughs> like, I know it, this might sound completely fanciful, but it's a sport that actually you could really move into other countries like women and and girls and like I see the basketball thing and the growth of the basketball through, through, through my wife and you know it's a fantastic game and it's a quick moving game but it's only five still on a court right and they're tight panels this is 15, 20, 25 girls you can see the camaraderie with the teams you can see what it means to I think the, the girl from Leash but you can see with the, the, the camaraderie with that group you know and girls when they leave school you know lads you go 18 you generally fall into GA club or soccer club or rugby club or whatever it is but girls at a certain age there's not a whole pile for them to get in touch with and stay involved with mm. and, and to really get that sense of togetherness and this is something which, which has obviously plenty of athleticism it has kicking it has catching it has all those different things and it isn't a sport that's going to necessarily hurt you do you know what I mean there's, yes there's physicality and they want physicality I think that's where Eamon's comments are a little bit um, they're just they're wide of the mark because I don't I've had I've said this for years if I had kids I would not let kids play rugby like not at all in the, but there's no way if I had a boy or girl and surely we should be treating them as the same thing here now you know my, my sister played in the county for Galway I've been to loads of the games they do not want a lack of physicality. They want physicality. Players and team. let's treat them as athletes. 100%. Absolutely, 100%. Like, I mean, you, you can't give one and not give the other. You know, you can't say, well, that's okay, but actually, hold on a second, because that is not a quality. You know, so, so you have to say, well, this is a sport. The, the sport demands that. Like, I mean, my niece is... is over with Leinster uh, she's the Leinster under 18 captain actually they've gone to England just over the next few days playing rugby and like she's an out half and she's played Gaelic she's played, and, and like as she was saying like I mean the, 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 the tackling and all that is a big thing for them you know they, they, they like I mean it's, it's, it's a part of what they do mm. and they get to, you have to learn the skills and it's a skill of the game so tackling in GEA and you know avoiding hits it's a skill of the game you know you're not saying you're just ploughing through people because that just won't work you'll get punished for it. So, but but the game itself, you know, I I, I think there's too it's too easy of an acceptance. Um, you know that they're just oh well they're going to head to Australia. I think there has been too many. And I'm not just saying it's because of the me girls, the the, the, the Tipperary girl who went. Yeah, open uh, very effective. Yeah, as well, you yeah. know, there, there's 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 just I just think that when I when I when I if I ranked both of them, I'd say okay, better attendances at uh, uh, ladies' games here seems to be a higher level of promotion for it. It seems to be better officiated. Uh, the skill level and the, the ability is far in excess of what's over there. So you're kind of going, well, where do I want to be here? You know, <laughs> which is the game that actually has probably more of a future? Um, and as I said, not even only here. Like, I mean, it honestly could be a game that could 
push across and you know all of a sudden you see girls and different teams like look at the growth of men's GAA around the world like I mean it is it is a growing so you go to the diasporas and everything else mm-hmm. there's people playing it all over the place and there's loads and loads and loads of you know expats and non-Irish players well I tell you women's uh, ladies football could be exactly the same yeah. if it was really properly done uh, ironically we we, start, we mentioned climate change earlier on Ireland will soon be a nicer place to live than Australia as exactly. well for the weather yeah, actually it will be exactly <laughs> that is the spirit Johnny Ward Johnny Ward is going to be back on OTVM tomorrow of course it is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finished year day Johnny's going to be alongside Nathan Murphy from half past seven in the morning OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar 